Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ace Deliri. Join us as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Well, welcome to Risky Conversations the Five. Uh, let's just start with a simple question. Uh, the first one we got was, how come you're an ex-engineer? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, my story in engineering is, is not exactly a long one, but has a little subtlety. Um, I started out as an engineer because I had gotten a a degree in mechanical engineering out of college. Um, But one thing I found for myself was that I I had difficulty with cubicle living after a certain point. Obviously, you know, it's it's something that it's sort of like chronic exposure. I mean, it's okay to do for a couple of years, but at, at the time that I had left, I just realized in my life I needed a break before I decided to go back to it. Um, right. So kind of my career track had been that the first about four or five years I spent as an engineer doing a product development for a small company. Um, and then I eventually transitioned to more of like uh, something I wanted to do, a customer-focused like sales engineer role where okay. it was a little more hands-on. I could... Um, parlay the stuff I, I appreciated about being able to interact with people and work on a team, but not basically be tethered to a desk so much. Gotcha. Um, long story short, um, a hobby of mine is in real estate, specifically okay. the business of ownership of, uh, of real estate units, you know, like as a business. And right. uh, I don't know, probably early, mid 2018, um, because of some corporate restructuring at the company I had worked with, it was just a very good opportunity for me to transition away from sort of technical sales into more consumer pseudo retail sales. And I became a real estate agent. And that's where I've been wow. ever since. But um, honestly, I, I'm, I'm planning on going back into engineering because uh, something that comes up whenever I talk to brokers about brokers who have been around for a long time about their feeling to the market in, in my current market right now is they say it feels a lot like 2004, 2005 did. Um, and I'm just conscientious that, you know, real estate is good now, but it won't be good forever. And also just personally, I, I went to this engineering school. I have all this technical knowledge that I'm not leveraging when helping people sign contracts and look at houses. You know what I mean? Of course, of course. No, I understand. So the so question is this, why, why do the brokers feel like it's circa 2008, sorry, 2004, 2005. What signals are they seeing that the rest of us aren't paying attention to? Um, well, something that uh, I've, I've spoken with a lot of people extensively about has to do with both the money lending environment and its mm-hmm. effect on just market inventory. Um, okay. Without, without compromising my uh, OPSEC too much, uh, I conduct real estate transactions in the greater Springfield, Massachusetts area. And okay. the things about it is that it's relatively home dense. Um, it's not heavily urbanized, so there aren't a lot of high rises. Instead, it's very flat, sort of like Los Angeles, where you'll get um, a higher density of houses that are, you know, two or three stories. 
and that's how most of the um, the real estate is spread. Okay, okay, I understand. Well, historically, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, go. Oh, uh, historically, um, real estate inventory uh, in Springfield had usually been approximately two to three months worth of transactions, uh, okay. meaning that if somebody uh, wanted to list a house, their expected time on the market for a, a fair price would be between, you know, 60 to 90 days. Obviously, if the seller's motivated, it can uh, happen faster. Obviously, if the seller wants a certain price, it might take longer, but generally 60 to 90 days. Recently, and this has been the case since around 2017 in my market, um, mm -hmm. the amount of inventory is like way less. It's closer to maybe a month's worth at most. Mm -hmm. If someone lists something, it can be expected to be put under contract very, very quickly, or there is a, a bidding war in order to secure it, especially if it's a nicer single family property. So it's a seller's market right now. Basically, and let me tell you, have I sent out query letters to try and get people to sell their houses? Mm, I see. So people are, so you're, you're, from what I gather from what you just stated was that people are now, because I, what I noticed in the last couple of uh, cycles of this type of stuff is that, that you could spot a bubble when speculators get in on the game, right? So what happens is you could see that there are people who buy a house as an investment for themselves and whatever, that's cool. There are people who go to these various trade shows and they learn, oh, buy it, flip it, and sell it type of thing. And then right. when there's a lot of those people, that's when you know something is off, right? It's, there's, this, there's a little bit of momentum that's off kilter. And that exactly. the people who are coming in are exactly doing it just for the sake of the money only. Of course, every business should be driven by the, the desire to uh, turn a profit. But if that's your only desire, you will find yourself in a situation where you will be lucky for a short while and then you'll assume you're good. And as a consequence, you'll end up burnt to a crisp. Yes, I kind of see um, where you're adding those maps up. It's, it's definitely trending in that direction. Um, real estate, you know, as the existence of real estate agents and brokers indicates, uh, real estate mm. has the problem of being opaque and sometimes inefficient. Uh, mm. You know, these assets are illiquid and they're all bespoke, uh, which is they're not fungible. So unlike, say, um, equity ownership, you know, mm. there, there just isn't the same opportunity for um, quick, quick sale or purchase of, of something like it, there's a substantial infrastructure legally required to, to buy or sell a piece of property. Um, and so because of that, I, I don't have exactly advanced analytics as far as where people are, but to exactly what you're saying, having spoken with people who are interested in investment property ownership or seeing the, the evidence of people trying to find um, equity flip positions, basically distressed mm -hmm. properties at a discount to buy it in cash, and then to put some, you know, some 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 amount of money into rehabilitating the property, like give it a new roof, new siding, redo the kitchen, that sort of thing, to get a disproportionate added value from the sale, even after transactional costs. Right. It's it's, it's getting high. Like my father, uh, who who also lives in the Springfield area, he's told me that for his house, he's gotten mm -hmm. like three or four query letters soliciting his sale of his house in cash. You know, mm -hmm. the, the person on the other side thinking they can get a good price. Um, and that's just within the past year. 
Um, wow. And, and the seminars that talk about real estate, oh, you know, you can make your first 100000 or any number of these things, um, they, they're always around, but as you suspected and, and spoke to, they're becoming very popular again. Um, right. I even attended one just to see what what people are pitching about what they think real estate is like and the market right. for so-called hard money loans, which are similar to cash, but they're heavily collateralized on the equity that's presumptive on a transaction. If you're able to get mm. a piece of property way under market price, um, right. that's where that's the securitization for the loan comes from. You know, a person might not need to put up that much cash if they find a really good deal because right. other people who have a lot of cash are willing to spot them. Right, 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 because they, they see the opportunity to quickly say, okay, look, worst case scenario, at least the thing you're buying at a distressed price is more valuable than the price you're willing to pay for it. So even right. if I come in on this with you, we'll be okay. Right, right. And that kind of thing has just become very popular uh, within the past two or three years. Well, you know, what's funny about that is it, it kind of speaks to the whole um, uh, process of Bitcoin, because when that, when that first paper came out by Satoshi, uh, it was around 2008. I found out about it about 2009. Uh, a couple of friends, you know, were working at a startup at the time, and uh, we were looking at it and like, you know what? I have an idea. Let's just throw a little bit of cash in this and then forget it ever happened, right? If it goes somewhere, right. great. If it doesn't, who knows? And um, I kept my position in that. I mostly forgot about it for a while because I thought the idea was interesting. But it was such a complicated problem they're trying to address with such a, well, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's an elegant solution to a rather nasty problem. But right. uh, it's one of those things where I remember the quote I remembered from um, Steve Jobs when uh, they asked him when he first introduced the computer to some people at a, at a party. They said, hey, you know, um, the, the people that, you know, the older people that are using this stuff, they're not going to get used to this yet. And his answer was, that's true. We'll just have to wait for them to die off because the next generation will be born with this technology in their hands. So right, I always had right. this assumption, right? And, and my presumption on this particular front was that Bitcoin is cool. It's got some really unique properties. I don't understand it well enough to uh, just totally uh, grasp the complexity of how it's going to interact with the rest of the uh, uh, the economy and the government because it's trying to be a global currency. So, but I, what I do know is that it, it may, if it ends up surviving past this generation of people who are currently alive, it may actually catch uh, fire. Uh, and when I say catch fire, I don't mean the speculative uh, people who are, you know, uh, mortgaging their homes to borrow money to buy Bitcoin. Because what happened was about last show the year before, I think it was around December, I remember I used to go into work and I had this friend who would always ask me about Bitcoin. And every time I gave him an answer, a few other guys in the corner were like, oh, my God, please stop talking about Bitcoin. And I was like, <laughs> okay, that's my, that's my finger on the pulse. But then what happened was literally a month later, those two very guys came up to me and said, hey, we want to know about Bitcoin, and all of a sudden, a light went off oh, in my no. head, and I said, if, "If these two, if these two guys want to get in, that means it's time for me to get out, right?" Yes. <laughs> so it, it was a perfect signal for me. I mean, I missed a, a good chunk of the, the upswing, but more important than that is I completely got to avoid that whole downswing that came with it. And so it, I've noticed exactly. that the same pattern occurs. It's exactly what you're talking about too, right? Because this whole buying real estate thing. It's uh, the people you worry about. That's when you know it's wrong is when the people who shouldn't even be in that business start running toward it. Right. 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 And um, the the uh, overarching effect on that, in my in my opinion, kind of kind of dominates how that this effect has happened uh, in real estate or at least how it's materialized this time 
mm. has been um, acutely, even teenagers who lived through, you know, the headlines of when Leaving Brothers collapsed and the economic recession and who, uh, you know, maybe were in high school or in college when uh, the U.S. economy was in the worst of it. Right. They are now seeing real estate valuations, not for the top end of the market where liquidity is very, very scarce, like the right. $5 million mansion that 50 Cent owns that he hasn't been able to move, but like just for common houses. You're right. seeing prices reach and start to exceed the peak prices in 2003 and 2004. So for even for, for teenagers who saw that happen and saw that it can come back, but more importantly, for people like my father who owned their home throughout this period of time, um, people are now becoming, I don't want to say predatory, but aware of the fact that, oh, people who want to who own houses who want to get out now have the opportunity to do so without having completely lost their shirt or being underwater. Uh, like, like prices are now to the point where theoretically there is enough extra space for um for amateurs to get into it without without having to uh pay too much downside if it doesn't work right 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 no it's funny when i when i find whenever i see stuff like that i always remember and one of my favorite authors is uh, mark twain and one of the things he always says is that when you find yourself in the side of the majority it's time to pause and reflect right so in that regard <laughs> When, when, when we were first talking Bitcoin, uh, I can honestly tell you the amount of people who would just say, I don't know what you're talking about and I don't care, that was a good sign for me. And then when everybody right. started talking to me about it, that was a bad sign. And I witnessed that during the last um, uh, economic recession with regards to you know, housing prices and whatnot, I had friends who were all of a sudden, oh, you know, we're in the real estate game. I'm like, no, you're not. You're, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, so out, that's so out of your lane. It's not even funny. But the thing is, they have this assumption that they bought one house for themselves, but now they know they know how you know buying houses and selling houses works. I said your sample size for what you're talking about is way too small. The house you bought is the one you're going to live in. The the deal you might have gotten was probably luck. If you're going right. to go out there right. and risk all that against a deal that you don't have any clue as to where the pitfalls are, you're going to lose the shirt, right? Right, so right. It's and, always, and it's always weird. That it's all leverage. You know, like exactly. it, it's one thing for you to buy it in cash and like maybe you lose 20 grand uh, because it doesn't sell for as much as you want or you spend it all on the contractor. It's another right. thing for you to start with only 20 or 30 grand and then to, to incur negative equity because the deal went bad or when or, or the yep. trade turned against you. Yeah, no, it's true. It, it reminds me of uh, of um, of margin calls on, on, on equity trades that people make. Right. So the whole. <laughs> You know, amount you got to get to stay uh, to buy in, and the amount you got to stay to to avoid a margin call. The ratio requirements in, in terms of payments for that type of stuff is always fascinating. But I want to yeah. switch a directional conversation to your story about the 2016 election. Oh, so what was your story about that? That that sounds interesting. Well, um, it it had come. So funny enough, that had come at uh, that that general. That, that effect of Donald Trump and his mysterious rise in the Republican candidacy and polling and, you know, just it, it was seemingly opaque to right. all of the world how he was being so successful. And it just by coincidence happened at the same time that in my life personally, 
I had really started to feel the itch that I needed to take a break for, you know, at least a little while from mm -hmm. corporate life. Uh, it right. wouldn't be for a little while until I actually would, but the um, the impulse was starting to to strengthen. Um, and and funny enough, it actually coincided to around the time I had actually read Anti Fragile. Um, mm -hmm. in, as an aside, when you mention about how you bought Bitcoin for the purpose that you found it interesting and you thought it solved the problem. Like you intrinsically valued it beyond what its monetary value was at the time. It reminds me of something that Nassim says in Antifragile, at least I think it's Antifragile, that investments should be done for entertainment or for mm -hmm. themselves, not on speculation, not for trying to make money. Right. Like if you actually right. believe in something, then invest in it. Otherwise, you shouldn't do that. You know, you're risking too much. Anyway. Right. Um, with the 2016 election, um, and and just with kind of the the things that were affecting and developing my worldview at the time, mm -hmm. I had I had been desperately trying to make sense of some way that Donald Trump was being so successful. Like what what explains what it is that he's doing? Because right. you know, I, I could watch clips on CNN. I could I could read the um, transcriptions of the things that he said. I, I could see people on Twitter and uh, even in print in broadsheet journalism get upset. But none of that, even just reading it um, literally or trying to induce from that some pattern, to me, I, I was just unable to figure out like what it is he's doing. But one thing was certain, like it works, like he, this doesn't happen by accident is at least the um, the inclination that I had that led me to pursue it. Eventually, um, make a long story short, I had discovered the blog of Scott Adams. Um, if your if your listeners aren't familiar with Scott Adams and his relationship with the 2016 election, um, mm. Scott Adams had extensively documented Donald Trump's campaign through what he calls quote, the master persuasion filter, end quote. Basically, um, Adams was able to use his background doing some uh, hypnosis, having been trained as a hypnotist and understanding um, the practical ways that a person's psyche can be subverted uh, in a state of mind when they're open to suggestion. And he was able to identify Maybe not, maybe not necessarily named, but at least particular things within Trump's engineered and precise use of language, while appearing to be totally uh, extemporaneous and and uh, messy, but within that was, as Adams mentioned, a precise use of language that was incredibly effective at um, maintaining a level of memorability in the minds of people who are open to hearing what he had to say, uh, which in practice are people who are on the fence or who don't know exactly what to believe or who see a phenomenon uh, that their peers are interested in and are willing to go along with it. Um, and through through Scott Adams uh, and, and just seeing this effect like you describe, but sort of the opposite with your friends in Bitcoin, seeing this effect with, with some of my social group. Um, I'm a Christian, uh, Bible-believing Christian, and uh, many of the friends I have in my church are 
one, sometimes two generations older than myself. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I found them very interesting in, in the context of that election cycle as, as like a canary almost. I mean, no offense to them, but, but they, they were able to show me like what the psyche of a bigger group of people was, at least as I understood it, and how I, I saw like it happened in real time that several of them were like, oh, well, you know, I really like Ted Cruz because Ted Cruz uh, believes in the Bible and he's a strong Christian and so forth. And another another friend of mine, uh, let's say this is August of 2015, they would say, oh, well, you know, I really like uh, Rand Paul because Rand Paul uh, believes in limited government and all of this. And mm. over the course of the culling of the potential candidates and as the polls uh, express themselves uh, in practice with different states giving delegates to, to different candidates and Trump coming up the winner and most of them, I saw mm. them all like kind of re rewire the the reasoning that they admitted to with like, oh, well, you know, I, I liked Rand Paul at first, but Donald Trump is saying some of the things Rand Paul likes. And I also like what he says about the wall. And, oh, I liked Ted Cruz at first, but Trump is saying many of the same things and, and he's better at fighting back or I think he'll be stronger on this or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. th that general experience impressed on me like, oh, man, Scott Adams is perspective explains things even if i don't exactly right. understand you know how some of this stuff actually works or if i'm not clever enough to actually um engineer things as well as trump can it mm. it made it like make sense in a way that i was willing to follow right and, and from that the effect was so strong that i made this very principled decision to say like oh trump is going to win and start telling people that but um, uh, around the time that this was happening, I had started following Nassim Taleb uh, on Twitter, and it was when he was still drafting articles and sections from his forthcoming book at the time, Skin in the Game. Right. And something that that, reading those sections on me about the, the ethics of risk-taking, it impressed mm. on me was it's not enough for me to say I think Donald Trump is going to win. I need to right. actually have money that Donald Trump is going to win. Right. And did you? I bet around six thousand dollars. Oh wow! Okay, and how was your return on that? I uh, I netted around twenty four thousand. Well, there you go, my friend. Skin in the game <laughs> always pays off. <laughs> well, I mean, so, it, it was uh, it was an emotional roller coaster. October of two thousand and sixteen. Make no mistake. Of course, of course, no, no, of course, no. See, I'll I'll share an interesting perspective on that front with you, right? So. Uh, Scott Adams' work, um, I'm very familiar with it as well. But um, So uh, there's this game we play. There's a couple of buddies of mine on Twitter. Um, we find people who are who appear to be intellectuals, right? And they could say things that sound uh, good. And so we follow them, and then we place bets. Like, okay, what are the odds that this person is actually an idiot, but they're also an intellectual? <laughs> like the IYI, right? So, so we place yes. these bets, and we just wait. Because sometimes people can hide their, their idiot side for a very long time. But eventually, it just collapses under the weight of its own assumptions because there's just too much exactly. there for them to hold. So the thing with Scott Adams is that his his um, his description of the process that you described is accurate. But here's where the so that's the intellectual part. But I'll explain to you where the idiot part comes into it. So what Scott Adams does, if you pay very close attention to it, is that he never ever predicts what's going to happen. He post-rationalizes what already happened to fit his theory and his models. So that exactly. called him out on that. Yeah, and that's where that's where the part of it is that 
he gets half the equation right, but the other half, he just completely stumbles all over himself. And then he had this um, sort of this uh, uh, clash with uh, with Joe, Joe Norman, yes, um, about the about the you know GMOs and data science and all that. Stuff. I think it was really more to climate science. And, and right then and there, like as soon as he was out of his depth, he started to uh, indulge in sarcasm. And I, yes. I, I see the use for sarcasm when it's useful. Right? So when you're dealing with somebody who's trolling you, sarcasm has value. But when you when you're engaging with somebody who is a worthy person to have a you know a worthy interlocutor, somebody you can have a conversation with. I always try to say, look, sarcasm isn't the answer here. This is one of those situations where a side conversation be worth it. But right, so, right, so, you have to assess the merits of the actual argument being presented. Exactly, exactly. So the thing that I've that I've been warning people about with regards to Scott Adams is that um, uh, he is a fantastic storyteller of the hit of history, but he fails short. Uh, when it comes to the other aspect of it, the epistemological humility of not being able to make predictions before the, the, the event actually occurs. That's where the, the trouble with him comes in. So there's value oh, in this. I totally agree. Right? right? So I follow along with him, and I'm like, okay, I see what he has to say. Uh, and I wait to, to uh, I know, hear his rationalizations. And of course, there's going to be some good answers to that. But I can honestly tell you the truth from what, watching how uh, uh, Trump became president. Um, there was probably about 10% uh, premeditated thought into how he engages with people. The rest of it is just his personality built up over time of doing what yes. it is he's been doing for a long time. So exactly. that's what made him so unpredictable. And so a friend of ours, uh, David Sirak, who uh, and I have these conversations all the time. Yeah, I, um, I met David at, uh, at Ruri 8 in uh, June of last year. So you know David. So, so that's yeah. awesome. I, I, um, so we were discussing this whole issue about uh, this, this concept that's um, – that's interesting to, to uh, watch uh, collapse under uh, the current social trends is that this idea of decorum, right? So it's like, well, you know, you have to speak a certain way, you have to say certain things, you have to follow certain guidelines, because what happens is decorum is a, is a way to maintain organizational structure, right? So what, like I'll give you a clear-cut example of that is that uh, in 2008 when Hillary was running against Barack and she was supposed to be the front runner, but he came out of nowhere and basically just sidelined everything to do with her particular approach, the DNC... Uh, as they, they put Debbie Wasserman Schultz as, as the, the chair of the DNC and all that stuff that happened. Essentially, it was a game. It said, okay, look, this round, we'll step aside. You take the podium and you become the candidate. But next round, we're going to rearrange and reshuffle the deck as we see fit. And along the way, right. they kind of got caught with all that stuff going in the wrong direction for them. And what I always find funny uh, with people who talk about this particular issue, and I have no, you know, I live in Canada. We don't have a dog in this fight, but... Um, what I find interesting about that whole issue is that this whole, you know, Russia Gate collusion noise that, that gets generated around this conversation, uh, and people are like, "Well, you know, it's the Russians' fault." And I always say, "Okay, that's a very irresponsible statement to make." And I'll tell you why it's irresponsible to make. If the Russians did hack and and uh, you know uh, expose all the internal communications that were going on, and they made stuff up, you could say, "Look." They hacked it, they made stuff up, and they persuaded a whole group of people to, to vote in the other direction. What they'll never account for is, look, they did hack our system. And I'll buy that argument. I'll say, okay, look, buy is a strong argument. Let me rephrase it. I will rent that argument for 15 minutes. And I'll... <laughs> yes, I like that. I'll rent that argument. Yeah, right? So we'll, we'll play along. and say, okay, they got into your account, and they started to notice the deep-rooted corruption and the lies and the manipulation that you guys engage in as a party. And that's what people didn't really like. 
it's not that, and you, none of you guys have, and I've, I've been witnessing, you know, I have str- friends who are strong on the left side of the political, uh, you know, structure and friends who are on the right side. I'm, I'm more a political in that regard and that I try to find the best solution to the context of the problem. Right. So I don't really care who wins as long as the person who wins is, you know, a rational human being with a decent sense of epistemic humility. But with the, with the, with the folks from 2016, and they're still heard about it, is that there's no acknowledgement that, look, if we had done this the way we claim to be, which is the party of the people and the party of good and all that stuff, that even if they went through our systems and our emails and all our stuff, they shouldn't have found dirt at the level that made people really dislike us. But there's right, a visceral right. reaction that people that they discounted, which was that they just genuinely don't like the level of hypocrisy. Because you can claim, I mean, you know, you heard it all the time when, when George W. was running or when uh, McCain was running against um, Obama or when Romney was running. If you listen to the mainstream uh, conversations, and I don't mean this from the media, I'm just talking general people, there's always this association that the, the right is the party of the dumbasses, right? The rednecks. Right, the, right. The, like like that they, they pander to the lowest common denominator or that right. they're by bumpkins in the country, that kind of idea. Exactly, right. So, so they've painted this whole picture, and then it surprised them utterly that, A, that picture is completely inaccurate. So to a large extent, it's inaccurate by such a large margin that it, it literally gobsmacks these people when they start to realize it's like, hey, we completely missed our boat on this. But that's okay, because that's, that's, that's just the, 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 the debt that they've, they've incurred. The interest on that debt is that they've created such a position for themselves by painting that we are the you know, uh, standard bearers of truth and we're on the right side of history and that whole vainglorious uh, approach they've taken to present their case became completely unraveled when the internal document sort of leaked itself and, you know, Bernie, yeah. Yeah. you know, so, so that, that right there, that's the interest that they can't seem to, to, to really grasp on because that damage to their brand is so big that it makes people think, you know what, even if I don't like Trump, I really don't like you even more. And so right. right. I, it's, of, um, it's, it's an effect yeah. like uh, Nixon where, uh, or just the broader effect, the cover up is always worse than the crime. Like if the DNC had openly said, well, you know, we like Bernie Sanders, but we implicitly made this promise to Hillary Clinton. So that's what we're going to support. People would not have the same cognitive dissonance that they yep. do when confronted with the, the uh, email hacking evidence that you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that's funny because that, that sort of uh, speak goes, it shows up everywhere, right? So it shows up in the corporations, much like you, you said, you're disdained for being tethered to a cubicle. The reason why cubicles, and I, and I found this because I work at a company where uh, I'm fortunate enough that I'm not tethered to a cubicle, but the people around me tend to be, and I started to notice it is that what makes people hate those jobs is the obligation of having to be there, which is part one, but part two is it's a matter of how you're supposed to behave, right? So oh, truth yeah. is no longer a viable currency to exchange in that set of environments because the political gamesmanship that comes into play almost always overrides what the person's natural instincts are. Whereas in a smaller setting or a different kind of company where, you know, the leadership or, or, or the you know, surrounding infrastructure is built on combative, reactionary, uh, you know, uh, self-thinkers, it's a much yeah. more, it's a more hostile environment. It's actually much more enjoyable. So you can actually tolerate that because when you're in a corporate environment and tethered to a desk where politics is the game, it's like you're being constantly marinated in this low-level radiation that sort of sucks right? Oh gosh, yes, yes. And and if you're in an office uh, of fluorescent lights, 
you're actually literally being marinated in a low-level radiation that sucks the life out of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, so that 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 aspect of your disdain for that whole pr- approach and 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 and, and desi- desire to change away from it, I, I totally understand that. Right? But I I get I like it because because my 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 perspective on that front has always been simple, which is that I tried my very best to be in a situation where I have managed to sort of extract myself away from the hierarchy of the, of the company that I work with. Right. So, so right. There, what, the, what it is, I, I looked around and I said, okay, let me find a way to do something here that makes it so it's hard for them to kind of categorize me. And that gives it's, me a level of freedom. Oh, and, and honestly, it's what I had strived to do uh, when I was at um, my, my most recent engineering slash sales engineering uh, position. Um, because I was in sales, uh, as, as Nassim describes in Skin in the Game, sales or trading or individual profit centers are like the unicorn-style employee, quote-unquote, uh, mm-hmm. where he or she has the ability to kind of subvert the relationship between employer and employee because they become so valuable in and of themselves that you can't just, you, like, it's a risk to let them go. You cannot treat them uh, like uh, with the same subjugation you can someone on a salary. Um, and, I, and I found out the hard way what mm. happens if, you, if you're too good at that or if you don't play around politically well enough. Um, mm. Without giving up too many details, um, I had been able to, um, um, on a cursory way, secure and almost directly secure two different accounts that were worth each at least, uh, let's call it $800,000 per year worth of business uh, Mm -hmm. for a company that itself grossed between 10 to $12 million a year. And I brought both of these accounts Mm -hmm. to my my immediate supervisor and his boss, the general manager of that division of the company. And at both levels, I encountered resistance. And on one hand, I'm thinking, like, the CEO came in here, like, you know, three months ago saying you guys need to be searching for these kinds of accounts. Why are you guys giving me all this what for for doing my job? Well, it turns out, uh, and this is part of why I, I chose to leave, there was the political obfuscation that they were um, kind of kind of keeping me separate from uh, their bosses and their upper echelon. Because if I were to bring those accounts, it, one, creates more work for them and that local organization. But two, they recognize that it would create this expectation to get more accounts like that that they just couldn't deliver. Right, 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 right. And, and, you know, me being me, I'm like, well, I did my job. And one, I'm not getting my commissions from these accounts. And two, how am I supposed to get more like this if you won't even get, get the ones that I have? I, I became right. very, very frustrated with like that environment. Um, right. And obviously, I'm not, I'm not trying to induce from that that every company is like that. But no, I'm just saying my experience is exactly like you're describing. Um, you, you sound like you're uh, eminently more successful at me in negotiating that uh, than I was, at least in that company. But I totally agree with you. That is the type of employment a person should strive for if you have to be employed uh, by someone else. Yeah, uh, and just so that our listeners don't get a, um, a, a false perception that I'm somehow a high IQ person uh, to <laughs> yeah. uh, an inside joke. 
Um, what it was, it was actually mostly luck. Uh, I'm, I'm smart enough exactly. to recognize when, when I'm lucky and when I'm not. Uh, so the way I deal with it is um, I, I put uh, the maximum effort I can into whatever it is I do. And sometimes that just turns into lucky opportunities. So, so I'll give you a clear example. So when I first started at the current company I worked for, I worked in the call center, just taking calls to help customers uh, troubleshoot um, uh, devices that they had purchased with us. And so I knew what my salary was per year. It was a, you know, a meager starting salary that you, it was basically barely sometimes even making it paycheck to paycheck, right? So, but it was a job. So I was like, okay, there's dignity yeah, in, in yeah. being here and uh, all that. So what, what ended up happening was I, I remembered my first lucky opportunity came about when this customer had just called us and they had essentially switched their business from a, a separate um, telecom carrier to us. And they had brought their entire business over because I guess they were so poorly mistreated that the person in charge of uh, their IT uh, decided, you know what, I'm just taking the business and going elsewhere. So they had come to us. And as soon as they had come on to, to, to switch over to our carrier, what happened was the sale was made on, on a Thursday and the switchover was scheduled for a Friday, but the Friday was a holiday. And then the switchover got delayed and all of a sudden the entire company didn't have a cell phone service for the whole weekend. <laughs> so I, I so shouldn't the, laugh, but like, that's a real thing. <laughs> That's a real thing. And it was a large company, a large account. And so this person called in and this was completely, first of all, it wasn't even in my domain, right? It's like, okay, you have an account related problem. I am a technical support specialist. Let me help you with the best I can. So I said, look, I'll tell you what, just stay on the line. Let me go find people. So I ended up putting them on hold, getting my boss's boss on the line, you know, calling various departments, getting like seven people on the line. And wow. all of us worked together to transition to help this account be uh, salvaged because what was happening was I looked at the math because awesome. what I used to do, yeah, and it was because before I used to run a business. So what I used to do, whenever a customer called in, um, I always first pull up their account. I'm like, how much is this person worth to this company, right? And that, that, that's not like something I used to discriminate to. That's something I used to say, okay, let me use a specific kind of judgment with this customer. So this customer is bringing in roughly – uh, I'd say at that time I did the math in my head. I was about 25 times my salary per year was being brought in by this company. Right? So I said, okay, if I salvage this, I could essentially retire from this job for the next 25 years and I still cover myself because look at what I brought in for them. So I managed to salvage it. And, my, and you know, long story short, my boss was uh, extremely ecstatic about it. And, you know, emails get sent out. And I was always, I'm one of those people. I'm like, please don't mention me in an email. Just let me do my job. And from that opportunity came an, uh, another chance, which was, hey, uh, we have this sort of website we want to build. We're not really sure. Do you know anything about that type of stuff? And I was like, well, finally, right? So that's where I got <laughs> yeah, <this>. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, I'm actually a uh, you know uh, aspiring software engineer because the company I first used to run, I hired software engineers and I was taken to the cleaners by them. And so I learned my lesson to say, hey, you know what? Uh, if there's a job, yeah, if there's a job that you can't do yourself, never pay somebody else to do it for you because if they know that you don't know what you're doing and they don't have the scruples, of course, all of a sudden yeah. I'm hostage. I'm the CEO and I'm hostage of this company that I'm running. And uh, a day dawned on me. I said, you know, they're not that much smarter than I am. Now, I'm not, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I can at least piece together a few things here and there. So I decided to teach myself. And right. lo and behold, I'm I was going to have to do that. this. I'm going to, I'm going to do it on my own terms instead of uh, being bullied. Exactly. Exactly. So, so that was the, 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 the experience I've had. And was, this has been my only corporate job I've ever had. Before this, uh, I worked in the fitness industry on straight commission. I used to, when I started out, yeah, and, 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 and I always tell people this. I'm like, you know, the young people who um, uh, sometimes I talk to and I mentor and whatnot, 
I always tell them, like, you have to take one job in your life where you get paid on straight commission because that will teach you yes. so much about what you're still, even if you suck at it, it doesn't matter. Go in. Oh, especially uh, if you suck at it. Like, like yeah. you, you learn how food tastes when you fast, okay? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That, 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 that's the primary source of all this. And, and, and I used to tell them, like, you know, when I first start at any gym, um, the conversations are always simple. So I'll give you a funny anecdote. Um, I, I was working at this terrible fitness club and I wanted to go to another one where my friend was working at. And so he brought me in and this club was just starting to get, uh, you know, they were about to, like a week and a half away from opening. So I went in, I introduced myself to the owners that had seen my resume. And they're like, you know, right now we're not hiring anybody, but thank you. We'll keep your resume on file. I said, okay, no problem. So we're chit-chatting for about five minutes. And me and the owner, uh, we discussed views. And he's like, oh, well, we got to figure out how we're going to do the sales and whatnot. I said, oh, you know, so you're going to set up a quota based on your expenses of the company plus 15% margin to give you a little bit of cushion so that you can extend your business going forward. And they both just looked at me like, what? What did you just say? <laughs> right? it, was, it was kind of like this moment of like, but that's how you set commissions for the sales team. You tell them, I need you to hit 50000 this month. If you don't hit that 50000 your quota is not met. Your bonuses are not met, all that stuff. But they don't pull that number out of their butt. They pull that number out of the expenses that they have to Right. Manage. It comes from reality. It comes from P&L. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, 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 so he looked at me, and he didn't say anything. So he's like, my buddy's like, let's go give, let me give you a tour. As I'm finishing up my tour, the owner comes over to me and goes, how would you like to be my sales manager? I stared at him. I said, I thought you weren't oh. hiring anybody. He goes, we weren't hiring anybody, but I think I would like to hire you. I said, all right, <laughs> I'll work for you, but on one condition. He goes, okay, what's the condition? I said, what do you pay for your um, commission rate? And he said, oh, uh, we pay 7% per sale. I said, okay. And he goes, let me give you a salary. I said, take my salary off the table and just increase my commission by 5% because wow. I'll eat what I, right? Because if I kill it, I'll eat it. You yes, don't have to pay me exactly. because you, if I'm here and nothing's happening, you're not losing any money. But if I bring you sales, then you owe me my money. But I've earned that money, so it's fair for both of us. So he looked at me and he goes, okay. We shook on it. For the first two weeks, I barely got any sales because all I was doing yeah, yeah, was walking exactly. around, talking to people, you know, pounding the pavement, going to the grocery store where people would be around that area, watering holes and whatnot. After a you while. buying cheap options, as Nassim exactly. would say. Exactly. But those two weeks are grind, right? You're literally, uh, as you said, you're fasting. That's, that's, so, six, that's the first six months of being a real estate agent. Like nobody knows who you are. How does anybody know to trust you? Uh, nobody knows what you look like because you don't have any signs. You have to hand yep. out business cards like you're allergic to them. Like, yeah, yep. I totally understand. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, that process alone uh, is what a lot of these kids are not really being taught how to do this, right? So the whole idea that, uh, to make a sale, you have to be good at what you do. And what I mean by that is you have to understand how to pitch value to another person. So I'll give you another quick example of that. This sure. conversation right now that you and I are having, you don't know me. All you've known is how we tweet. And that Twitter exactly. conversation between me, Amber, and the guys. Yeah. And it's all it's like, okay, look, it took years of building those relationships to the point where the first podcast was literally released yesterday. And before so that, everybody. I haven't listened to all of you and Joe talking, but so far, like I, as I was listening to it uh, on the car, uh, down going to church and back, I, I, just like you described in your tweet, like you're thinking of ideas, having re-listened to it. That's the same. I, I had the same experience. Yeah, and that's that's all credit goes there to Joe, but because uh, that's the kind of mind that you're dealing with when you when you when you when you talk to Joe. But 
what made it interesting was this whole idea of, uh, you know, my first, and I started this podcast very, very simply, right? The, the assumption has always been that nobody talks about the stuff I like, right? Nobody talks about risk. Nobody talks about ruin. Nobody talks about complexity. Nobody talks about interdependent layers of different systems that are always brought into consideration. But I said, well, why don't I just start it? So I, I sent out a tweet to the guys. Everybody's like, yeah, that's a good idea. Da, da, da. And I'm like, okay, so it's a great idea, but who's going to execute, right? <laughs> Nobody wanted to execute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's much like when you, you learned about outside hiring. If you don't do it or aren't willing to do it, you can't expect anyone else to, you know? Exactly, yeah. And that's the funniest part of it all because it loops all right in the honest stuff because I told the guys and I, and I, and I knew because I'm like, you know what? This first podcast that we published was such a pain because I didn't know how podcasting is hosted. I didn't know all these things you have to go through the legal requirements for getting the tracks and all this other stuff that went through it. But now that it's all done, it turns into a sort of like a, a, a template that you can actually just easily publish going forward. But that first yeah, one, man. The biggest transactional costs or overhead is already done. Like if you do it with one, yep. you can do it for 50 or 100 or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it all ties back into that same concept of convexity, right? So, so me and Ember, um, she, so for most people who don't know, um, Ember is an intricate part of this, even though I'm the loud mouth who talks all the time. She actually does a lot of the, the uh, detail-oriented stuff in the back. So usually when we have Hi, a guest Amber. on... <laughs> yep, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> she her her natural predisposition is to be quiet, right? So I have to always sort of push her to say something. But what what she actually does for us is that she'll go and do research. I'm like, okay, this person is coming on in this area of expertise. So for you, this is a perfect transition because uh, we're going to talk about the biohacking that you're interested in, and we're going to talk about you know cell towers. So um, I'll give you the floor on that front, and and, and we'll, we'll take it from there. Uh, sure, sure. My, um, my interest in, in biohacking actually came, uh, of all places, uh, related to my, my other kind of pet interest in movies. I think I mentioned um, in, in my biography to you, but also you mentioned in, in the, the announcement tweet, um, I really love uh, the, the pictures and movies. And specifically, I saw the movie Limitless around 2012. Yeah, around 2012. Um, and oh, for yeah. those unfamiliar... Uh, Limitless is about a man who is, by his own admission, like a loser. He's a he's a writer, so it's you know redundant. But uh, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But it, he he makes uh, an old he meets an old friend, and this friend of his gives him this drug called NZT that is this like super cognitive enhancer, and in practice, it makes him incredibly smart and very clever and things in the in the movie that that depict this are how he's able to learn and become fluent in French in a couple of days and um, he he learns and sees patterns in the market and makes himself a lot of money and and all sorts of other stuff and and as a movie it's very entertaining I think it's structured well and paced well um, in order to incorporate dramatic elements to a point where it's uh, it, it moves very very easily but anyway, when I saw the movie, I was so impressed with it and thought specifically that, oh, this, this has got to be based on a real thing. Like, what is, what's the real life NZT? Um, mm. And I, I had done some, some Google research and, and looked at other people who, uh, even long before the movie, had studied cognitive enhancers. Um, and funny enough, many of them used their performance before and after on IQ tests as mm. evidence that a particular <laughs> cognitive enhancer works, but um, 
the short version is I was able to find a source uh, that led to other places that indicate that the effects of this mythical compound NZT are very similar to ones produced by a compound called modafinil. That is an anti-narcolepsy okay. drug. Uh, it's, it's trade name in the United States is Provigil. Um, and so naturally, when I found out, oh, modafinil can do this, I'm like, well, I'd, I'd like to get my hands on some. Uh, but unfortunately, it's a prescription drug. So I had to mm -hmm. order it from India. But of course. Uh, once I, I got my hands on it and I took some, like it was incredible. You know, I, I, I had, uh, I, I could, you know, zone in for, you know, 12 or 14 hours in a whole day. Uh, I could, I could uh, retain a level of focus that I couldn't even using substances like caffeine or, um, or uh, a nicotine patch for, for much longer periods of time. Uh, and, and, you know, I could even go to sleep with it and I, and, you know, it would, it wouldn't affect my ability to go to sleep or wake up at appropriate times and so forth. And I thought it was great. Um, and, uh, and I found out about this compound modafinil from a man named Dave Asprey. Uh, yes. The, yeah, the so, coffee guy. Exactly. Exactly. The bulletproof coffee guy. Um, having found out modafinil was was successful for me personally at that time, circa 2012, 2013. Uh, I, it, it, to me, lent credibility to this guy. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, I will give more seriousness to what he has to say. And, and he was the first person to expose me to the word biohack, uh, right. which is just broadly um, the willingness for a person to subject themselves to experimentation to see what different compounds or different regimens or, you know, whatever does to them, specifically in pursuit of uh, the improvement of performance, which is what Asprey was interested in, though uh, he's since become much more interested in selling supplements. But um, right. it, it, it generally the philosophy was... Uh, just the willingness to take your own risks to see what something does and then to keep what's good. Mm. Long before I had ever encountered the idea of optionality and read anything by uh, Nassim Taleb, I, I had like practiced or, or learned the, the methodology in doing this. Uh, mm. and, and I'd also learned that there are certain, um, certain biohacks that, that can be lethal to a person. Um, mm. Uh, an example would be that certain people who combine certain compounds together, like um, if they take caffeine and another one called yohimbine, um, one, one of them acutely increases your blood pressure and another one, um, it, it decreases your, your uh, body's ability to, to reduce its blood pressure by capillary absorption. I can't remember specifically what it is, uh, but something I'll say right now that we can talk about later is that it doesn't really matter because I think that explanations generally are just bullshit. But um, uh, sorry, I am a Christian and I try not to swear, but there are times when it's appropriate. <laughs> anyway, um, but point being that like certain certain biohacks can be fatal, and uh, I realized even even before hearing the phrase precautionary principle or absorbing barrier. I was like, well, there's no way I'm ever going to do that. Even if I turn out okay, I don't want to die, you know? Um, it's not worth the risk, that sort of thing. Um, That's a good attitude to have. 
<laughs> right, right. Uh, to live to fight another day, you have to start by living. So um, anyway, anyway, to condense a very long story, um, Dave Asprey had done a co-authorship or rather kind of co-linkage with uh, a neurosurgeon, a man named Dr. Jack Cruz. Uh, he practices out of New Orleans, Louisiana. And uh, it, it was, he and Asprey had done this series on what's called cold thermogenesis, which is mm -hmm. just about how um, the brown fat, but really every cell with mitochondria has the ability to generate heat uh, in response to a cold stressor. And uh, there's ancestral gene expression in addition to acute ones. So like mm -hmm. uh, someone who is black or brown is going to have a, a smaller gene expression of what's called uncoupling proteins that allow them to generate heat in their mitochondria, heat and infrared light, than someone who is um, pasty white, like from Ireland or from Northern Europe, for example. Um, okay. But anyway, um, that was my first experience to that guy named Jack Cruz. And uh, Jack, I had I had tried to read his his blog series on cold thermogenesis when I became interested in it from Asprey's article, and Jack went into further detail, and I I found kind of the material very difficult to read, and he provided references that that themselves were um, they were they were both somewhat scattered and and required effort to put together, but mm -hmm. it led me down a path of other biohacks that I I hadn't encountered, uh, for example the idea of putting orange colored glasses on at night specifically as a deterrent to the effects of artificial light relative to what the spectra of light that the human eye would encounter at nighttime naturally so right. you know if you're to go ten thousand years ago in the past the only night that there was at nighttime excuse me the only light there was at nighttime would have been fire or candlelight or its equivalent in addition right. to uh, starlight Whereas now we have the ability to generate uh, light that's just artificial at will. Um, but it, it goes along with, with several things I learned from Jack that were uh, above and in some ways overruled what I had learned about biohacking from Dave Asprey. Right. And the big takeaway I learned from Jack and the resources that that just body of thought led me to specifically a book by uh, Gerald Pollack called The Fourth Phase of Water, in which water uh, uh, in the presence of a hydrophilic surface actually arranges itself into sheets um, because the molecules form a hexagonal pattern whose density gets changed according to the uh, photons of light that interact with it. Um, mm. Another book called uh, The Body Electric by Robert O. Becker, that describes in detail um, the electromagnetic effects that happen within the body, not just of, of humans, but other mammals, even of plants, and uh, documents some of the results of electromagnetic experiments that primarily were conducted by the Russians prior to the 1950s and 60s. Um, mm -hmm. But there were just a handful of resources I discovered. And um, the conclusion to all of this was that uh, on a heuristic level, there's all sorts of stuff to to do about it. That's what I was really interested in. Um, right. uh, one of the things that uh, that Jack and, and other people like him say is, 
you know, eat a lot of fish because the active omega-3 in, in mammals is um, DHA. It's not EPA, it's, it's DHA. Um, and DHA gets acutely destroyed around uh, blue light, which is light between, say, uh, 440 to maybe 400 nanometers in wavelength, um, especially in, in like your eyes and your optic nerve. And from uh, what, like Wi-Fi or cell signals or other quote-unquote non-native EMFs, mm. um, and and yeah, I, when I first read that, I thought, okay, all right, sure, whatever. What do mm. I need to do? And and the heuristic given to me was, all right, well, eat some lox salmon as often as you can, eat a bunch of oysters, eat shrimp, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I had I had done that as a biohack thinking, mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, I'll, I, I can eat sushi every meal. That's fine. And something that I had found that I thought was totally unintuitive was my vision. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm nearsighted like uh, uh, 1.6 uh, diopters thereabouts, but, uh, and I have prescription eyeglasses, but I, I had discovered that for certain, that if I were to eat a lot of fish, like a lot mm. of fish, like I was eating it every single meal, a lot of fish okay. or, or shellfish every single meal for like two or three weeks, my vision actually improved. Now, I wow. thought this was until I cycled it. Like I, I it, it's one thing to think, oh, you know, this is actually working, but you have to actually test it. You have to see if it's real. You know, like uh, uh, if you don't do an A and B, how do you even know? Because it could just be the placebo effect. Um, sure. Anyway, anyway. I, I did test it and it was real. And the tragic thing was, is that I have to eat these terrible, slimy things called oysters as often as I possibly can for the rest of my life. And I hate them, but I love them because every time I, I eat a bunch of oysters and do cold thermogenesis, like I, I sleep like a rock and I dream really vividly. Um, mm. Anyway, it, it, it led to that, that body of thought just, just came from, um, you know, learning a few of these resources and understanding how there is a construction of modern life that exists today that is fundamentally different than the, uh, let's call it evolutionary history of humans that's millions, maybe billions of years old, depending on how far back you want to examine organisms. Mm -hmm. and, and that, you know, while humans are resilient to certain chronic stressors that exist in modern life, like fluorescent light or, you know, like cell phones, that doesn't necessarily make them safe or even good. And where this dovetails with the philosophy of risk taking beyond just the willingness to actually test things and apply risk with skin in the game is the idea that I've, I've become incredibly intransigent towards is that people underestimate the dangers that accompany mm -hmm. things like uh, on their weakest effects, like fluoridated water, or then getting more strong, uh, like artificial light, uh, to their strongest effects, such as like uh, the newest generation of cell towers, 5G cell towers, whose um, frequencies and power transmission are like one or two orders of magnitude higher than any that have ever been used in a consumer application before. That mm -hmm. You know, I'm not trying to say immediately, uh, oh, I'm prognosticating and I know 100% that they're going to be bad, but that um, in, in a voice that, in, in a set of voices rather, that feel even more 
quietly observed than uh, Joe Norman and Nassim Taleb with glyphosate or GMOs or even um, the bigger precautionary principle paper uh, that describes it with, with mathematical rigor what's, what's incumbent on avoiding systemic effect risk, uh, that people are saying the same thing about non-native EMFs. You know, I'm, again, mm -hmm. like I said, I'm not trying to say that, that new cell towers are going to be bad, but that there have been few examples of a larger audience being willing to believe that they're possibly risky is what to me is, is concerning because you're now creating this top level adoption, um, which if it is catastrophic, will suddenly affect a huge amount of people. Like, you know, right. if 10% of the people in New York City got some sort of mysterious metabolic illness because of the cell towers there, that's almost a million people. Like that would be a, a tragedy. But anyway, that, that's um, that's the, the general summary of kind of what, what you'd mentioned about, oh, uh, what got me into biohacking and what some of my opinions are about uh, about how it relates to, to risk and precaution. So what were the costs of your experiment? Um, so uh, which one? Because I've, I've done plenty. <laughs> your most vivid ones. Oh, oh. Um, so, so generally, uh, I would only do something if it was if the cost was actually reasonable. Um, and, and reasonable is a subjective term, but for me, it was you know say fifty to a hundred dollars or or less, depending upon what it actually was. Uh, so, for example, in the case of getting modafinil uh, that was generic, it maybe mm. cost me seventy or eighty dollars to to get a small test amount. To, right. to get it shipped and then to try it. Um, in the case well, of the, oyster, oh, the sorry. Were, no, the, the, the cost I was, I was focusing on wasn't necessarily the monetary cost. I was saying like, what did you notice? Because you did get the benefits of better eyesight, but did that come at a cost of like, I don't know, reduced hearing or something of the sort? So because because oh, as okay. you know, these things work with there's always a trade off that you gain one thing, but you know, nature asks for payment in another spot, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it, one of the costs that I've noticed is now I have to eat oysters whenever I can, and I don't like that. Uh, so you didn't I, have any negative. You didn't have any adverse besides the taste factor. You didn't have any adverse reactions to any of the stuff that you're doing through your body. Well, uh, certain things uh, I did, um, mm. and and I, I and as I sense that's where you're going, I can I can talk a little bit more about that. Um, for modafinil, for example, uh, I noticed that if I overdosed on, on it, uh, while the mean mm. lethal dose is very, very high, like I don't think it's even established in humans, but um, it's far more than what would be considered a therapeutic dose. If I took more than what I had approximated worked for me, I would find mm. that my, my, I would get some slight tachycardia, like my heart would race slightly, and I would have the ability to focus but it would be impaired by um, occasional racing thoughts. Um, right. uh, other, other costs, for example, might be uh, anybody who knows me understands that when it gets dark or if I'm around a lot of artificial light uh, during the day, mm -hmm. I wear a special set of orange tinted glasses, um, mm -hmm. as I mentioned, specifically to eliminate uh, um, free certain photons of light of a given frequency from um, interacting with my, my corneas and, uh, and my irises. Um, mm. 
And obviously, like, if you're the only one in the room wearing stupid orange glasses, <laughs> you look like, like uh, uh, a Bono who's just not so cool. Um, uh, something in general that I, I have observed is the more technical and modern a biohack, like if mm -hmm. you're using um, special LED lasers on your brain or mm -hmm. if you're um, using some special meter that you uh, track your um, your blood pressure patterns as you're sleeping to see your sleep quality or right. uh, if you're if you're even going to um, going to the doctor to get blood work drawn frequently as simple as that the more modern and specific the the biohacks are the more likely you are to encounter a really pensive downside um, right. When when I was learning about the effects of non-native EMFs, I I had a sleep tracker on my phone that I actually kept mm. under my my pillow, which mm. you know uh, I would I would now slap the the younger version of myself for ever doing because you know I'm introducing some thing that radiates electromagnetic fields that aren't from nature next to mm. my organ that has the biggest electromagnetic field permeability of my my brain. Mm. Um, Anyway, I had I had tried to use my phone to kind of measure, quote unquote, how well I was sleeping. And mm -hmm. something I just noticed at the time was like, my sleep is terrible. And I, I mm -hmm. didn't understand why. And then, you know, as I kind of learned, I was like, oh, well, I should stop doing this. Uh, you know, I should put my phone in airplane mode when I'm when I'm sleeping instead of like trying to do some abstract measurement to chase some tiny improvement in the quality of life and then right. i learned that well my, my sleeping got better um but to answer the spirit of kind of ember's broader question mm -hmm. uh ultimately in doing more of the quote-unquote natural or primal style biohacks like mm -hmm. cold exposure like eating a lot of fish and oysters like wearing um the orange colored glasses and or being around actual fire. Mm. Um, as I incorporated more of that, I found mm. that my need to use, say, supplements to right. enhance my quality of life or um, to go out of my way uh, or like 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 use other compounds to see if they had a, a beneficial effect. They, they slowly went away. Uh, there, right. there was a time in I think it was like 2015 when I still had some modafinil around, but I had I hadn't taken it in quite some time because I didn't want to conflate effects of biohacks. Mm. And it was long after I had adopted the like you know um, heavily circadian rhythm driven sunshine and fire style life that I had taken some modafinil and I found that it didn't do anything. Like mm. there was no benefit of focus that you know I. I wasn't any more able to pick my spots and be more engaged than I, I was just normally. And it kind of just dawned on me, like sort of like um, a, a Twitter, a Twitter fo uh, follow who we both, we both keep up with a guy named Guru Anaerobic, sort of like he mm -hmm. says, nature builds in a lot of stuff that's good. We're the ones who screwed up. Right, 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 right. Uh, no, so on, on up front, like, uh, so I was uh, similarly interested in, in, in this, but I always had a different approach to it because um, when I got started in 
in the uh, weightlifting uh, arena, uh, one of the first couple of guys I met, one guy was Russian and one guy was German, right? and they were older guys, so they were, you know, from like the uh, communist era, and they they kind of had experience training athletes, and they were always looking for an edge on uh, competition, and and one of them actually took, uh, uh, you know, uh, to lack a, a better phrase for it, a pity on a 16 year old kid. And I said, you know what? Um, I see you coming in here to this gym. And it was this little ratty gym that I used to work out of. And he goes, you're mm-hmm. putting in effort, but you're not getting any results. I said, yeah, it's because I don't know what I'm doing, right? That's just the fact <laughs> of life. No, I appreciate know, his opinion. Yeah, yeah. It's like there's, there's, no, there's nothing here that uh, um, is natural. All these movements are, it is what it is. So, you know, whatever. So the guy told me, he goes, okay, I'm just going to teach you a couple of things and I'm going to tell you what never to do. And then the rest is up to you. I said, okay. And so the trick was, he said, look, um, fast, uh, whenever you can. Like, okay. And, and I, you know, I grew up in a Muslim household. So for me, fasting was a horrible experience because you don't drink water and all the other stuff that goes with it. But this is not what he was yeah. talking about. And he said that um, yeah, um, lift very heavy weights when you don't feel good. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, whenever you feel really down, like let's say you go through a, a state where you're you know, like, um, you know, low on energy or anxious or whatever the case may be, just come and lift very, very heavy weights. Whatever you can, pick any exercise you like and just pick something really heavy up. That's it. And he goes, the rest of it, he goes, you'll figure it out. And so I, I always kept those uh, two ideas in mind because it actually, it didn't click perfectly in for me until Asim was explaining the concept of a fat tail. And for those of you who uh, are listening to us who've never heard of this concept, well, essentially think of it in the best way is that the number of people you'll meet who are on average, between the ages of zero and 100 years of age, that's a bell curve, right? Somebody's going to fall somewhere in the middle. Nobody's going to be a thousand years old. But if you think about, you know, who's going to be, you know, net worth financially at $100 billion or net worth financially at minus $50 million, that's a bigger grasp, right? That's a huge range. Yeah. That's where the fat variable comes into play. So how that applies in this case. Change the, the properties of the observed quantity. Exactly. Exactly. So, so the way that applies in, this, in, in the weight training example is that your, uh, the heart rate and the variance of your um, biochemistry, because your system doesn't communicate with you in any way other than stressors and hormones. Right? It doesn't react to your mental people who go on these trips about, oh, I'm going to do yoga and I'm going to read these books about uh, this, that, and the other. I'm like, okay, look, that's cool. But that's just surface level stuff. You want a chemical reaction, and you want that to emanate from the bones. And that can only happen when you pick up something very, very heavy. And, and very, very heavy is obviously a relative term. Very heavy can mean the following, right? So if you, and I, I, when I train clients and when I, when, I, when I do this stuff now, I always tell people, I'm like, okay, just map out a week for yourself. How many things are you picking up, and how much do the average weigh? Right? So, oh, I pick up my backpack. It weighs about five pounds. Cool. I pick up my son. He weighs, you know. Nine pounds. Cool. Okay. And then what about the rest of the time? Well, I sit at the office, I drive, I do this. So great. So your actual load that you're putting on your system from a stress point of view is nothing. Essentially, that's what it is. Yes. It's it's very, very little. It's very, very little. I said, so now that's fantastic. But also look at that against, so map that load against the structure of of your body against time and space. It's spread out and there's no huge sources of fight or flight induced from your system. At the same time, you are, as we said previously, marinating in this low-level radiation that is your corporate life that you don't like, which is leading you to go home, you know, watch Netflix, eat garbage, 
consume noise via Instagram, whatever it is you're doing. And and then because you're trying to snap out of it, you look for the easier solution, which tends to be, oh, let me find a, a book by some guy. I'm like, oh, that's great. Here's what you should actually do. Go to the gym and just pick up something heavy. And if, you, if you're good at this, pick up something that weighs twice as much as you do. Right? So squat or deadlift or, 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 or bench press twice your body weight. And what's going to happen in that instance is that your body, as relaxed as it was, as stressed as it may have been because of the radiation of the environment of work, and I use that term very specifically, so don't. Uh, we're going to talk about that after, but what, what ends up happening sure. is your bones react and you get a visceral um, uh, immune response, so to speak, because your bones really are uh, where your immune system starts to actually work itself out, right? So, so you get this reaction in the gym and you pick up something very heavy and all of a sudden your mind, your thought process, everything stops and you're focused exactly where you want to be. So when you're picking up weights, you get out of your head. And that's why, you, that's why he was saying that if you're feeling down, go pick up something heavy. Because during that moment of picking something heavy, the chemical reactions that are going on in your brain, the chemical reactions that are going on in your body, all of that stuff, the, the junk that was there gets filtered away. Now, of course, this is not a be-all, end-all solution to everybody who's got all these mental health issues. But it's enough of a solution that the vast majority of the people who are suffering from these particular ailments of the modern day can receive a tremendous amount of benefit for And so go into the gym, pick up something heavy, and then you get a fat tail event introduced into your life because for the week you're picking up your child or your backpack, that's one thing. And then for one brief moment during your week, you're picking up something so heavy that your entire body has to recalibrate itself to stay in, in the zone. Right Now, if you get really good at this, you could do something extraordinary, which is to say, okay, I'm going to pick up, I'm going to get, uh, your goal at the gym is always the same thing. And I always tell people this. Your goal at the gym is twofold. One, make sure you could lift when you're 100, right? Because that's the first thing. That's that whole rule of if you don't survive, it doesn't matter. So if you can't pick up weights exactly. at 90 or 100, you've lost. Once that goal has been, um, uh, you know, embedded into your, into your mindset, your second goal is simple. Become, become as strong as you possibly can. And that, and, and, and that could be at any weight that your body naturally gravitates toward. Don't force yourself to overeat because you're a skinny little guy trying to get big. Uh, and don't try to uh, starve yourself to become skinny if you're a bigger person. It is what it is. Just live within the, the, the frame of reference that you've been given and maximize that. And that's the best biohack in that regard. And what that does for you is it will recalibrate your ability to sleep well. It will recalibrate your mood, which will open exactly. up optionality for you. Right. So, so I went down the path you're going, but I, I, I remembered it from their point of view, which was to just stick to stuff that um, uh, anybody could do. Uh, stuff that allows you to uh, proceed down a path that's replicable for anybody else. So it's not BS related, right? Because I was interested in the, the butter coffee and whatnot, and I started to listen to it, and I was like, you know, this is such a marketing pitch that it's almost losing its value. Like every second I hear this, it makes me more and more reluctant to listen to this person, right? So yeah, I'm biohack. I, I, I right? So yeah, so we're I, I mean, agreement on that front. Yeah, I, I, I had actually, I, I actually like the flavor of coffee and like what butter coffee did. And, and you know, right. there That's are a handful of people who do as well. And it just kind yeah. of indoctrinates them. You know, they think that everything this guy says is right. And, you know, I mean, I, I learned to develop my own skepticism after having tried enough things that specifically Dave Asprey said to do that didn't work. But, right. um, you know, it it's, 
it was a teaching experience that I had I'd already learned from just a handful of other things in life where um, there is domain dependence. A person may be right in one area, but that doesn't make them right in all of them. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's what, um, you know, a lot of the the, you know, the latest uh, thing that was going on, on Twitter just now was the whole idea of the best war to engage in is the war against BS, right? So if you can eliminate BS from <laughs> from the vast majority of people's lives, you can reduce a whole lot of unnecessary self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the foot, right? A lot of people just right. shoot themselves in the foot because they're constantly engaging in, 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 in things that create inflammation. And, and I've, I've always uh, found this interesting because I have a couple of friends who are doctors and what they tell you is that disease is almost just basically inflammation. It's inflammation to the point where your body can't handle it, right? So you need external resources to sort of manage that. Medication is, is an attempt at solving that particular layer of problems. But essentially, when something is wrong with your system, it's because there's chemicals uh, that are being generated in that area that are not leaving, right? It's like you have a squatter, and the squatter also refuses to bathe, and is no prickly, and, and is trying to take over other organs and all this other stuff that starts to happen. And it's essentially a consequence of accumulated inflammation. Sometimes it just happens because, you know, we don't understand the full reasons for it. But the vast majority of time, if you are engaged in activities that induce um, chronic inflammation, you will start to notice your mood uh, being affected negatively. And uh, there's three or four things that people could do that is very simple. And the reason you know that this is true is because it's not special. Right? So the first thing exactly. Is exactly. Yeah. First thing you can do is just stop consuming and start producing. Right? Go do something, anything. Because right? if you're the vast majority of people are constantly consuming on their cell phone or watching TV or whatever it is they're doing. Okay, stop that for a while and just go produce something. You know, like fix your garden, right? Clean up your house, or or go uh, help build a, uh, you know, a, a, one of those habitat for humanity type right. projects. Go, go, go document and just start writing a writing. journal of what happened today. Yeah. Like do do anything else. Exactly. So that you're no longer in the process of consuming, but you're now in the process of, of, of producing. So that's the easy part to do. The second part is get some damn sleep, right? Use life <laughs> <hack. laughs> More sleep exactly. equals uh, odds in your favor. And the third thing is just stop eating um, for, for a while when you're when you're because uh, the, the, the friend of mine who I spoke with, who we're hoping to bring on as a guest eventually, um, his, his take was that uh, from when you put food in your mouth to when it exits your body it takes roughly 18 hours. Right? So that's when your system is good. So what's happening is when you eat food and you start this process, um, you have 18 hours to let the body literally complete the, the journey from start to finish. What people do is because they've been chronically uh, consuming so much junk that they have new uh, biome and bacteria in their gut that's constantly you know, starving for sugar, asking them to consistently add more junk into the, food, uh, into the system. So that's why they get hungry every three, four hours. And as a consequence, the amount of byproduct of the bacteria that consumes that sugar is more inflammation into the gut, right? And that inflammation starts to spread to the rest of the body, and that inflammation actually reacts to the way your mood is perceived. Oh, yeah. And, right? and it's not just the interactions up. of the gut. It's that um, there's, there's a nerve, uh, I believe it's called the vagus nerve, that actually links the, the gut to the hormonal circadian rhythms in your brain. Like if you are eating bad food or if your circadian rhythms are bad or vice versa, you can make one worse by doing the other. So like if you're if you're eating like the best food possible, but you're staying up late at night, not getting enough sleep, 
you'll still your health will be worse and your ability to digest or other things will be bad as well uh similarly like if you're if you're getting good circadian rhythms but like you're eating you know cheetos and candy bears like (laughs) you can also expect your yourself to not be working optimally like it's it's there's a relationship between i think the vagus nerve and the leptin hormone and light Mm. cycles but but yeah i'm not to cut you off it was more just to to build on what you're saying like there's the human as joe norman described is a full ecosystem and any interruption within what is you know any one of the, the the calibrations that it possesses affects the whole thing of course of course, and, and what, what makes all this utterly fascinating is that um, the disruptions that come from not having a sound control over your own body, i.e. you're not eating while you're not sleeping while you're not lifting uh, heavy weights or whatnot, opens you to external stresses that come your way when you interact with people outside of your, your circle, right? So people who are negative towards you, who are, for lack of a better word, bullies or you know, just pure ignorant types who... Uh, manifest themselves in your life, either personally, socially, or through your professional uh, interactions, that is a compounding uh, factor against the debt of your own uh, personal um, uh, problems that you've accumulated. Right? So I've always told uh, some of the people that I work with, I'm like, if, if, you're, if, if, you, if you're unhappy with uh, A, B, and C, start with A, which you control, which is start with your own body. Right? Like, yeah. you know, I can't go to the gym. I'm, I, you know, I'm this, that. You know, okay, no problem. Here's what you can do. Right. There's a there's a <laughs> phrase in, among chess players, a bad move only leads to other bad moves. Right, 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 right. If you sacrifice uh, your, your, your health at home, you're not going to have much chances outside. But uh, so this, this biohack on that front is, is something where I think people are so heavily swamped with noise. Because if you if you really pay attention to how many advertisements you see per day, and that includes you know, your phone, the TV, you know, the billboards that you drive past and the conversations on radio and whatnot. It's 90% food, right? It's always oh, yeah, food. Yeah. And, and the other 10% is almost always this new drug. Ask your doctor if this will help you yeah. fix your whatever. Meanwhile, Drugs are entertainment, basically, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so it's like, okay, you're, you're creating problems and then you're solving these problems with medication, which is fine when it's necessary. Like, this should be the last resort. It's kind of like going to war. It should be the last thing to do. But the first thing is, how about we don't artificially induce unnecessary inflammation to the body? Right? I, I totally agree. It, I, I will remark, though, that in my experience, mm. in just mm. kind of relating the stuff that I do, which I admit is extreme, even among people who, who take pride in doing this, um, mm. that I have, I've encountered very, very many people who, even when presented with the right way to go or... Okay, let me let me let me rescind that and say not necessarily the right way to go, but presented with an One alternative worth exploring. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, an alternative worth exploring, or or a mindset that's different than what they already have. Mm. Most people um, who decline, uh, they just they they do it because they they're unwilling to to go through the effort, even if they might say they are. And that's not to right. impute them to say that they're hypocrites or that they're um, they're bad people. Yeah. Right. It, it's that there is a human inclination to inertia, you know, uh, which is good. Like if you know what you have and it's predictable in ways, it is preferable to the unknown. Um, right. And which which 
uh, on a second order effect creates a distrust of things that you are unfamiliar with. Um, yep. But uh, in in practice, especially when modernity has rewired people to have their default be what is in modern life and not what is in nature or not what is more essentially intuitive to what what reality or real life is it mm. can be dangerous uh and and for them it can be it can be stulting uh yep. I, i've met people who i i've told them about like my orange glasses and you know they helped me sleep and i thought it was bullshit but then i tried it for two weeks and then it worked and i'm like well now i'm locked into it and um and uh, i'm thinking of specifically of, of a friend of mine uh she had she had told me you know, I, I suffer from insomnia, but mm. if the solution is having to wear these glasses every night that look terrible and that don't go with any of my outfits, <laughs> I kind of would rather keep the insomnia. And I'm like, well, yeah. all right, I at least respect that because the decision is more informed and you're making it on a certain level of integrity. But I still also yeah. don't respect it because you're choosing a worse outcome than for something whose cost is so trivial. But right. It's just as you're describing, there are things a person can control, but even if a person can modify them, not mm. every person will. You know, I, I, right. I tell the gospel to so many people, but not everybody takes it. And even those who take it, it's still an uphill battle because, you know, it, it implies sometimes small, but sometimes big changes in a person's life. Right, right, right. No, the, um, that, that angle of conversation with most people and... I refrain from it on Twitter for, for various reasons, uh, specifically when for it comes to weight. Very biased reasons, uh, yes. Yeah, right? So because cause what ends up happening is uh, um, certain topics of conversation, people are so heavily invested in it that for them, anything that doesn't validate and reinforce that particular point of view is is essentially a sign of war, right? Like, we're going to go to war about this. And I said, okay, look, uh, your politics, your religion, your weight training routines, and your code editor those are essentially your particular preference. Do as you wish, as long right. as you uh, recognize the uh, aspect of it. That, uh, like, I'll give you a click on example. Uh, just a couple of days ago, there was this conversation on Twitter, and, and this is a very relevant conversation. It's going to take a little bit of nuance, but I think you'll appreciate where, I, where I'm coming from. Yeah, the, conversation was, the conversation was about people who experience uh, back pain and have weak lower back or weak backs and whatnot, right? So when I hear that, I... Because you know my, my background in anatomy, I'm like, okay, you have to be very specific. Where is this back pain? Is it your L4, L5? Is it your thoracic spine? Is it your your your, your neck? Because that's considered part of your back. So you need to be specific. But that's not even the yeah, issue. Sure. So we're right off the bat. Yeah, right off the bat, we're out, we're on the wrong foot here. Right? So the argument was, oh, don't go see a doctor because the doctor is going to uh, treat you like a nail because the doctor is a hammer. And they're going to recommend surgery for you. And they're going to verify that you need surgery because they're going to give you an MRI. And most people have some variation of subluxation. Therefore, it'll confirm that they need surgery. So therefore, don't go to the doctor. Just go to the gym. So I said, okay, hold on a second. Um, this argument was presented with some level of authority. I don't know. I'm not sure where it started or who, who really took it on. But, but it kind of took on a life of its own. But a younger, a younger man just a couple of days ago was asking me the same thing. He's like, hey. You know, my lower back hurts. What should I do? This, that, and the other. So I said to him, I said, look, let's do the precautionary principle and apply it here. Right? So first and foremost, if a third of the people who are supposedly going into these places that actually do need this back surgery don't know that they need that back surgery and they go into the gym and they pick up something very heavy, then guess what actually happened? 
you have to get the bachelor's degree. Exactly, see, yeah. It's, it is not worth your payoff to take that risk. What you can do as an intelligent human being is to say, okay, my back hurts. What I will do is I will start by just simply stretching out a little bit, right? My hamstrings may be tight, my quads. I don't know, something is out of my, my, my balance. And then I'll go see somebody, you know, a chiro, physio, pick a, pick, pick a person whose anatomy is their job, right? That, that's the kind of person I want to see. And let them tell you, hey, things look good. You're just weak. That's fine. That's, that's the answer we're looking for. And even if they tell you, oh, your, your, your disc is this, that, and the other, it doesn't mean you have to go do surgery. What you could do is you could say, okay, what are the best ways to fix this problem without surgery, right? Because that's what people are afraid of. Strengthen your back along those paths and then come to the gym and do the exercises that are going to help you, and that's great. But what's happened here is that there's this idealization of a certain set of parameters that are now pervasive within the group that we're um, traveling with, which is the following two things. One, everything in nature is good. Absolutely not true. We know that's not true. Oh, no, totally not true. Like a tiger is not good for a human to be around. Like, come on. No. no. And being, being around, uh, you know, open water with, with animals defecating everywhere, not good for humans, right? So natural water, I like this, I like that. I feel in the, I'm like, relax, relax yourself. Let's not lose our heads here. What you need to do, same thing with the weight routines. I, I think weight training is great, but I also know it's not for everybody. Right? So if you're one of those people who it's not for, then it's not for you. No big deal. Go find something else, but go do something. Play volleyball, climb a mountain, you know, wrestle a bear if that's what it is for you, right? It doesn't matter. Do something physical. But when it comes to the nature side of things, and I think Nassim had this point because we're always trying to find this balance between preserving what is old and, in, and, in, and inviting what is new so that we can reap the benefits of it. And I think he hit the nail on the head when he said that if you move too fast, you discount the progress you've already made. So you don't get to reap the benefits of what you've already accomplished. If you move too slow, you may not have enough time to react to the new dynamic environment and therefore you may not survive. So right. the balance in all this is to not be a person who's a hermit living in a, in a, in a cabin somewhere deadlifting rocks while you eat fish and spear them with your hands. That's, that's, not, the, <laughs> that's not the balance you want. Yeah, I but mean, you also, that also removes from your humanity. Like what kind of life are you even leading? Exactly, right? And, and, and the opposite of that is don't be the person who sits in a cubicle all day, um, you know, getting into flame wars on Twitter, coming home to watch Netflix and eating pizza and then going to bed chronically um, malnourished either. So there's a, there's a happy balance to be made everywhere you go, right? Um, uh, I think sometimes people, when they discover something new, they kind of get overzealous with it and they get a little carried away with it. And they tend to go in a direction that sort of nullifies everything that came before it. And I noticed this, this very chronically true for people who are avid readers, but slow thinkers in the sense that they don't think quickly on their feet to say, hey, this new book that I just read is the answer to everything else I've ever ne you know, never knew about in life. I'm like, relax yourself. Again, yeah. there is no such book that's going to give you the answer to all the problems that you have in your life. So when Even I see- the Bible is self-limiting on how much it actually tells you, like, come on. That's, that's exactly it, but I'm noticing that. I'm, I'm trying to help people fight this particular um, uh, pernicious belief that one thing is the answer to everybody, right? And it's really not. Um, so there's this uh, junction at which we have to sort of balance the equation of, okay, modernity is great because you don't have to worry about a tiger eating you. That is not something you think about ever. Modernity is great because you can have access to food that's high quality because you just have to go to the market Pick out what it is right. you like. And most people, Modernity solves a lot of great uh, problems. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not dissing it for that stuff exactly. Yeah, and and and, and you know, and, and the, the place that I notice is 
you know, it's really weird because I like to cook, right? And most, I don't know where this, this idea came out that guys aren't supposed to cook. I don't know where that, that foolishness started, but I'm like, I'm sorry, right. but if you can't cook, you're going to have, you, your life's going to suck. You need to eat three times a day, sometimes, you know, twice, hopefully, whatever the case is. You need to know how to make something that's good because otherwise you're going to hate your most precious activity that you do, which is a very personal uh, thing that you do. And I always tell people, I'm like, uh, food is an investment in your health. Right? So you're going to put something in your system. Your body's going to break it down. And then it's going to give you a net benefit or a net negative from that particular interaction. And if you don't love cooking and you don't know how to cook, I can almost guarantee that your life is going to suck. Because the food that you're going to be constantly eating is going to be food that's going to be ill-prepared or it's going to be store-bought and mass-manufactured. And I can almost make these links to people. That's not a one-to-one uh, connection, obviously. But all the healthy people that I know share this trait. They all like to cook. It's interesting, right? It's like, hmm, why do you like to cook? Well, I, I, I want to know what goes in my meal. There's the answer. Right? They know exactly. Oh, these are my herbs. Yeah, right? And, and the people who order food all the time. And here's what threw me off. Because right? I learned how to cook Italian from um, this uh, friend of mine whose father owned the restaurant. And she, uh, I, uh, so, so he used to invite me to the house and he's old school Italian. He's like, hey, dinner's going to be three hours. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? It's going to be three hours to make three hours to eat. I'm like, okay, well, let's go. We'll get in the car. We're going to go grab all this stuff. So we'd go to like two different places to find the right tomatoes that he wanted. And this other farmer friend of his who gave him the right herbs. And it would take us like an hour and a half to get to each guy. And I was just sitting there going, what are you doing? But the like, man did it. What's effort? Like, what's, it, what's the point? I know. I, I, I get it. But when we would come back and then he, he you know, he's like, he's like, show me how you cut something. So I'm cutting because you don't know how to cut. I'm like, okay. He goes, let me teach you. So I'm like, All right. I'm happy to always read, learn new skills that I always thought I knew. But he taught me how to cook. And then he taught me how to love the process of cooking. The smells that come up when you're making it. And, the love that goes into, you know, you know, sort of culling your favorite ingredients and then the dish you make. And so he taught me how to make really fancy Italian foods, but we never use sugar for anything. It's always like spicy foods. Right? So if your marinara sauce has some spice in it, that's the flavor you wanted. It was never like anything else. But one time we went to a restaurant and I ordered, and this is an Italian restaurant. So I'm thinking, oh, it's going to be great. I ordered this pasta dish and the sauce was sweet. I said, why is marinara sauce sweet? Oh, we add sugar. What, why are you adding sugar to a marinara sauce? That's just what we do. I said, no, wrong. Don't eat, like I don't it. want sugar, and I don't want it in my pasta sauce. Like, what are you doing? And so I actually returned the meal, and I was like, okay, we're done with this. This can't be, because I, I like it spicy. I never want it sweet, and if it was sweet, don't use white sugar on my meal, right? At least give me the courtesy of saying, hey, at least it was just honey, which I could semi-tolerate, but you're giving me white sugar? On top of pasta, that's gonna bloat me. No, no, we're out. Yeah, this is this is nonsense. I, no, I, I I definitely agree with you. And and um, to go back to kind of the deeper point um, about like say the the process, mm. and to dovetail it to what we were talking about earlier with say uh, sales and skin in the game. Um, for a lot of people it, who are entrepreneurially inclined and who want to own a business mm. my experience seeing them and i obviously can't say oh this is the way to run a, a successful business but what i can say is that from what i have seen my experience has been those who love the process intrinsically like if they like making their own amateur movies if they like doing their own sewing if they like making stuff that they 
you know, put on a listing on Etsy, even if it never sells. Those who mm-hmm. like doing a process intrinsically, if they continue doing it indefinitely, they will event will eventually get successful. And that's yeah. that's part of like the the ergot the ergodic property of life that like um, a person's station can be dynamic depending upon uh, their exposure. But uh, people who, especially real estate agents, which I can definitely say is true. A lot of people come to real estate, especially in markets like this, where it's very successful and it's very uh, profitable to do so, thinking that, oh, you know, I, I can just walk in and start doing it. And when they find out that it's not, that like you have to scrimp and claw for just like that first one or two or three buyers uh, agreements or listing agreements, like it's a lot of work, but it eventually becomes exponential and multiplicative as you be- acquire a good reputation and do good work. Um, there's a big fallout, a big silent graveyard of of real estate agents in the first, you know, one or two years where, you know, they just stop because they weren't as successful as they wanted to be or they just didn't care to learn the methodology or whatever. And and just like you're describing about cooking, um, a friend when I was when I was younger, he expressed to me, you know, Matthias, start cooking now because you have to do it every single day of your life. If you just get a little better for just one meal a day, after a year, you'll be an incredible cook and you won't even realize what happened, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's not even that hard. Yes, it'll cost a little bit to get better ingredients. And yes, you'll start to refine your, your palate to what you expect from a dish. But those will be good things that become built into your experience of making food and then eating it. And it's just like you're saying, like, like you related on Twitter a little while ago about treating cooking as a meditative experience about loving it as a savor of creating something that's separate from just eating the food and that's exactly the right kind of philosophy like like it's why people enjoy making food for others that they know that they'll really like you know it's like fat tony would say it's it's grandmother wisdom 100 percent uh nothing more grandmothers love to do than to feed you right yeah, and and if your if your friend who uh, whose father told you about having uh, how to make Italian food properly, if if his mother were there, she would have been saying, "Oh, you want some food? You need to eat," you know? Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. Uh, there's, there's there's definitely layers to uh, how you know. There's things that I, I'm noticing, which is really weird. Um, young people, I, I do my own laundry, and again, I like what it's weird. I like watching the washing machine spin. I don't know why. I look at it, I'm like, this is so cool because before this was available, you have to take it to the river, beat it against a rock and rub soap and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. You, against you have it. to have it's your like own soap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's way too much work that's involved to get this to work. But now, here you are watching this machine spin. And I usually just have a book in front of me and I read it and I look at this thing. And, um, and uh, you know, the, the laundromat I go to, sometimes people come in and, and they don't know how to do laundry. And I'm like, okay, um, no problem. You know, not everybody has learned this, but somebody taught me, so I'm happy to teach them. And I explain the skill to them. And I find it interesting because that always leads to a conversation, right? And so I find out, oh, so what, what exactly do you do? Oh, I'm starting to be a doctor. I'm like, okay, <laughs> right. that's cool, but why weren't you taught how to do laundry, right? Like, there's, there's, there's disconnect. I'm like, see, you on the on the modernity side, you've you've clinged on to one thing that's really amazing, which is cool. 
But on the other aspect of it, you don't know how to do laundry and you're 32. Okay, cool. I mean, that's a long time to not have a vital life skill, but that's okay. It happens. And same thing, they don't know how to cook, right? Like, uh, it's just, you ask them, like, what is your best dish that you can make? Like, if you came to my house and said, all right, Ace, I'm staying with you for a weekend. Um, just delight me with everything that it is that you know how to make. I will have amazing meals for you for breakfast, lunch, dinner, uh, you know, fasting times, you know, barbecue, all that stuff. It'll be, you'll, you'll like, okay. As, as uh, whatever happens at an oh, yeah. age, I've seen your Twitter. I know all about how great the meals you make are. Right. So, so that's the type of thing. And, 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 and what's interesting about it is that I've noticed this weird correlation of the small sample set. So please don't extract too big from it for our listeners. People who know how to cook also know how to talk. It's weird. They have great conversations. You talk to them about stuff and they're like chopping, they're singing, there's you know, music playing in the background. They're, they're talking to you about this and talking to you about that. They're not really stressed about anything unnecessarily. The people who don't have time to do any of these things are, are chronically sitting on a couch watching TV and don't know how to cook. I'm like, where's this weird disconnect? How come I'm seeing these patterns that appear, apparently um, are not necessarily uh, paying attention to all the factors around them? And it sort of has this weird connection to it all, right? So this, this, this whole crew, this Rory crew that we're all sort of a journeyman to, and like I said to Suraz when he was on the podcast, that's, we're all just a bunch of cats, right? You can't really hurt us together. Um, yeah. Because we all, we're, we're, we're kind of, you know, and, and Trishank is like this, is that like, even when we all agree, we still find things to disagree about just because some of us are disagreeable in our personality types and we want to argue about it, not to be rude or, you know, mendacious or, or vicious, but just because it's like, I have this idea. Let me pitch this and see how many ways people can put bullets in it so I can make this idea better. Right, bullets, right, right. So Test the strength of it. Exactly. And, and if you don't test it, and, and you know, as I was talking to Joel the other day, we were talking about the whole idea that uh, a set of assumptions may be true within a limited context of, of a range of, of stressors that it can handle it and it's bounded under. Right? It's cool to cook for five people when they're your friends. I imagine it's unfortunately disastrous to cook for 500 people if there's a wedding party and that's who you're catering for. Right? That I wouldn't want to do. Right? So there's layers to this. Right? So, so it kind of ties all that into it. And, and you know what? Who else is a really good cook is Ember. Uh, she teases me with uh, some of the stuff she cooks, so um, she can chime in on her take on all this. Yeah, I think it's mandatory to learn how to cook, especially if you find yourself in a position where you don't have anybody else feeding you. Um, <laughs> when I moved out, <laughs> when I moved out, I didn't have my mom cooking my meals, you know, so it's like Mr. Noodles every single day if you don't know. Oh, oh I'm sorry and to hear that. That is not fun. <laughs> No, no, no. I, I started cooking when I was 12. My mom made sure to, like, put me right in front of the stove and teach me how to start from the basics, which was um, eggs. And mm. then I picked up the skill. I really liked cooking in general. So mm. I used to make giant meals for, like, the whole entire family when I was, like, 14. I would, I would make the food so much that my mom had to mix and stir the ingredients in because the, the pot was so big and I, it was bigger than me sometimes. <laughs> So wow. I, enjoyed, I enjoyed making food a lot. I think uh, it connects people together as well. You definitely have good conversations over a good meal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, um, along the lines of what you're describing, uh, there's a friend of mine, a, a very good friend of mine named Michael. Um, he, he works at a tech job in New York City, uh, and, he, and he makes a, a, an excellent living. And... Um, I once I actually stayed with him when I was uh, at uh, attending Ruri uh, of last year, and uh, I 
I looked in his fridge just out of curiosity before, you know, one, one morning before he had gotten up and I saw it was like totally empty. And later in the day I asked him like, Michael, how, how do you, what, what do you make when you cook? And he says, oh, I, I don't cook. And I looked at him like with narrowed eyes and he's like, yeah, well, you know, where I work, they provide, they provide food and, you know, I just make enough money that if I want to go out to eat, that's just what I do every night. And I'm like, mm. I mean, don't get me wrong. I certainly get the idea of appreciating food, especially the creativity of other chefs and other people uh, who do things or approach making, making meals differently than you. But when you have completely outsourced one of the fundamental things of life, mm-hmm. to me, it created a level of cognitive dissonance. Like, you know, there is a, just like Ember, you described, there's a pride in making food, not just for yourself, but the ability to make it for other people. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like the movie Ratatouille that like, like there is a joy that it creates that's, that's aesthetic in nature in addition to it being functional. Yeah, no, it's it's it's, uh, it's absolutely true in that regard because what I was talking to uh, some of the guys on a, a few podcasts ago was that this whole process of of taking pride in it, right? So so people are busy. I'm like, you're not that busy that you can't do this. Right? I'm a busy person. I have I work seven days a week and I love it because it doesn't feel like work to me. I you know I lift weights three times a week. I go play volleyball two nights a week. Uh, I do this podcast once a week whenever we have guests that are lined up. So if, if you're going to give me the busy card, we're going to have to flip that deck back right onto you because it's enough. You're right. not busy. But what's you interesting is... You can wait an hour and a half to sit down at a meal in a restaurant but you can't make your own food in half an hour. Exactly. Like, come on. Exactly. Right? And that's the part of it. And, I'm, and, then I, and, I'm, and I always get to the bottom of it. I'm like, okay, either you don't like washing dishes, which is, I can actually relate to that, which is fine. But yes. that's not an excuse. That's, that's, that's a chronic excuse that's going to backfire against you. Or you just don't know how to cook and you don't want to learn how to cook. Which is... Unfortunate because it is a life like it is one of those things that you you really have to know how to do right. You can't just cross your life without knowing how to make a you know a decent steak or or an omelet of of, of some sort. But uh, it, it 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 ties into this right. There's this whole layer of um, and I was talking to to Gordon and Alex about this is that there's this notion about uh, energy and pride in terms of what it is you do with yourself right. So you get up, you shave. Well, I don't need to shave. I'm, you know, no. It talks about the aspect of putting effort in. You comb your hair properly. That's effort being put in. You make your bed before you leave the house. That's effort being put in. All of those can save you time if you don't do them. That's true. But what it does to you is it lowers the bar of expectations for your own effort against what you're willing to put up. Because people get into the stream of reference where they say, I will really step up when the big things come my way. And I always tell them, like, if you can't get the small things right, that's A. That you don't know when that's going to be, but B, more importantly, if you can't handle the little things, the big thing is going to crush you. So if yeah, you can't show up, right? If you can't cook because you're too lazy, um, then what's going to happen is you're going to go into work and whatever project they give you, you're going to look down on that project and say, this is beneath me. I don't need to do this. This is stupid. I hate this job, blah, blah, blah. Your brain's going to say, oh, okay, we're, we're calling it in. No problem. And then you'll do a lazy job and then you won't get you know, an opportunity to do something else. And then you'll Blame the system. Oh, it's politics. Oh, it's this. Oh, it's that. I'm like, okay, carry on, right? Like, there's some people, there was a Yogi Bear quote literally this morning. If some people don't know it, they'll never know it, right? I love those Yogi Bear quotes, but uh, <laughs> it, it speaks exactly. to this. Yeah. Right? So, so I, I love how all that stuff ties in, and it's always based on risk, right? Because a little bit of cooking is a little bit of risk, right? And the reward of it is your own 
meal that you get to eat with your own hands. And along the way, you get to sort of experiment like, oh, this is how you make lemonade. Like I experimented this morning. Oh, you make lemonade, freshly squeezed limes, a little bit of lemon, a little bit of honey. And then let me try a pinch of vanilla extract. Well, how would you try that? I don't know. Maybe it's going to suck. Maybe it's going to be good. Turned out to be fantastic. I right. If it doesn't work, I just get some more lemons. Like, you know, Basically, the, the downside is found. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the upside of it is, hey, there's a fresh drink that I made that I like. So I finished it and it was like a tiny glass. I said, I'm going to make a little bit more. And this time I'm going to add uh, crushed mint in there. Right. Just Ooh. to give it a little freshness. Right. It took it to the next level. Well, that allowed my brain, I gave my brain explicit permission to experiment because we weren't saying this is beneath us. Oh, I don't need to do this. I can just, you know, whatever. No, no, no. Let's try something. Oh, that was really good. Well, what if you try something a little extra? Oh, what do we have? Ah, mint pens. Let's grab some mint, crush that up, chuck it in there, let it wrap itself around a piece of ice, taste it. It was so refreshing that I almost just was going to, I was literally going to cancel this podcast and just sit there drinking lemonade. <laughs> you know, if you had messaged me and told me that that's why we had to cancel, I would have like totally understood. Like, I thought, oh, especially if you find something that really works. Yeah. All, along that lines, the friend of mine who encouraged me when I was younger to to learn to cook, um, something that that I marinated on after he said it was, mm. it's it's easier now for a person to learn to cook well without being clever than it has ever been in human history, at least in the modern yeah. developed world, because the yep. availability of high quality ingredients that are fresh and that that would otherwise have been exotic as recently as three or four hundred years ago are now just abundant like like you can add stuff in that nobody would have even thought to do years ago simply because you, you like you can it's not expensive right. to add cumin or saffron or something to a dish just to see if yeah. it's good yeah yeah and I've, i've ruined many a dish just being experimental with it but at the same time, when one comes out that's right, oh man, that goes in the books. Like, okay, oh, you were about to say you write it down and you do it again. Like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so here's what's interesting about this, right? So I, I talked to a lot of guys, you know, some of the younger guys that talked to me at work and, all, uh, and some of the ladies also, they're like, hey, you know, it's, it's easy for you to talk this way because you get to talk to Joe and Nassim and these guys and you know, they're really you know, accomplished people, this, that, and the other. And so it's easy for you to talk about all this stuff. But for me, it's difficult because I'm in a toxic environment that people around me aren't like, you know, super positive and they're not go-getters and, you know, they always doubt me. I said, okay, let me, let me just stop you right there for a second. Let me explain the difference in mentality between, uh, and I, I've distilled this from the, the Kipling poem, the if poem, but to, to elaborate on it, I always tell them the following story. I'm like, look, most of peop- um, people's lives are basically a fantasy that they've constructed from watching movies. And in the movie, what they really do is they cut out all the boring parts. It's always the fun stuff, right? Oh, I met the girl. Oh, we had dinner. Oh, we're getting married. All that stuff. But here's what's interesting. All the fun stuff that happens in your life is the stuff that happens daily. But people are waiting for their vacation. And I'm like, if you know how to make a really good meal and you're at work and you're thinking, man, I can't wait to pull into the farmer's market, pick up some fresh parsley. Because I just, I, I have my farmer's phone number. This guy doesn't like phones, but he gave me his number because when I meet with them, I ask him about what's the irrigation technique? How do you keep your soil fresh? What's happening with the nutrients and what's happening with nitrogen? 
Do you know how much they're dying to tell somebody that piece of information? Because nobody asks. Right, so they're like, like oh my God, you want to know? Care about. And as soon as somebody else cares about it, they're like, oh, oh. man, it feels like a kindred spirit. You know, I, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I asked him, I said, hey, man, I, I don't know anything about farming. He's like, obviously, because you're here. I look at you. You've never done farming a day of your life. That's a fact, right? I, I went up to that. But I said, so let me ask you a question. So you plant seeds of whatever crop you're growing, but then you deplete the soil of nutrients. So how do you circumvent that? He goes, ah, you don't plant the same thing every year. You change it because different things that you plant have different requirements. And then you let the chickens graze. And when they do their droppings and they do their pickings, they get rid of the stuff that you don't need, and nature takes care of the rest of it. As long as you're not putting uh, poison into your uh, plot of land, it'll take care of you as long as you respect it. So I'm like, oh, interesting point of view, right? So he's explaining to me this, and I, you know, we're talking about parsley and how you could tell if parsley has been cooked, uh, um, grown right, and what kind of uh, water saturation levels are required, and how much sun is needed. And this is completely all chemistry at this point. But this gentleman who basically is a farmer and he's been farming since his great granddad taught him how to do it, is explaining all this stuff to me. And then his wife happens to be a baker. So I talked to her oh. and she's explaining to me how to tell if eggs are good. Because I used to tell her, I'm like, you know, I really love eggs, but I'm very apprehensive with eggs. Because sometimes I make steak and eggs and the eggs are terrible. She's like, yeah, I know, right? It kind of ruins the whole flow. I'm like, but I wish I knew if I could at least tell which egg was bad. And she goes, come here, let me teach you. <laughs> so I walk over to this lady and she explains to me, and I'm not going to explain this to anybody else, because if you want to know how that's done, go talk to a local farmer. Go yeah, talk go, to a baker. go talk to your local farmer, your baker, right? like, like yeah. meet someone real. Yeah, they, they, they explain these things to you because that's how they made their living and they love doing it. So she's explaining it to me. And I'm, ever since that day, as I've been making, you know, eggs and I've been, you know, making my other dishes with all these herbs, there's these layers of conversation, this art form that's been lost. And so tied back into the original conversation with the Ruri guys and, oh, you know Nassim and you know Joe. And I'm like, first of all, I don't know Nassim. I know of Nassim, but I don't know Nassim. So let's not get that yeah. twisted. We, we've liked but, each other's tweets on Twitter now and then. Yeah. Like, right? I've never like, sat down I've and walked around New York City with him. Yeah, we haven't had Squid Ink together. But, but what I'm saying is that the, the vast majority of the joy that comes from, and you could tell the guys, you know, like, oh, like, uh, uh, Trish uh, talks about his various um, Indian dishes that he makes and, and, yes, and he yeah. way. or Joe talking about the, the dogs and the water or, and all that the stuff. Garden that he, he has. Yeah, or, or Guru talking about how much he hates garlic. But, but what's interesting about all these conversations <laughs> is that that's the daily stuff that we do that brings us so much joy that we don't have to look forward to quote-unquote a vacation. For us, the vacation is the icing on top of the cake because the cake itself is so good that our everyday lives are enriched by the fact that we're not looking for some distant event when we're going to quote unquote have fun or it's going to be great. Yeah. No, yeah. like how do I have fun right now in this instance? And, and, and along that line to talk about sort of um, perversion of modernity, mm. when you related earlier how so much of advertisement is engineered towards things that are uh, like ethereal, a lot mm. of consumer culture is the um, subversion of that right impulse of appreciating the aesthetics that are exist in life mm -hmm. and replacing it with things that, that are product-centered. You know, yep. people love Amazon because Amazon like getting fast food or like, you know, taking drugs to relieve themselves of some affliction temporarily because mm. it, it, it's pseudo-immediate. 
yes, you don't get the yep. product as soon as you you hit you know submit order in in Amazon. But like, it creates this experience. Like you have this thing to look forward to, and you're going to be a little happy when you get this product that you don't need. And you'll appreciate it for a little while, and maybe you'll keep using it, and that's cool. But most of the time, you won't, and it'll just be another thing cluttering up your house that you don't want to get rid of because you remember how much money you spent on it. And <laughs> and like it's a pernicious form, uh, like a lot of things, it's a pernicious form of trying to subvert that for the sake of like some very cheap but aggregately very valuable money making. And mm. and most people. I don't want to say they're trapped, but mm-hmm. but they they retain that that pattern of of doing that despite right. that fundamental like mode of of the daily and what you look forward to could be something that's, you know, much more fulfilling like you're describing right. about the meal you can make at home that's not even that long, you know, dishwashing notwithstanding to not, or not even that sophisticated to make or um, you know, just, just for a lot of people, uh, just being around your spouse, you know, like, yep. like how, how people say that at home, they find it a chore to be around their spouse, but it didn't used <laughs> to be that way. And it's like, well, right. you know, I, I can't tell you how to have your marriage, but the fact that it didn't used to be that way means that you can go get it back. Like, right. The relationship's not irreparable, you know, but but it's right. it's emblematic of like a bigger philosophy, just like you're describing of these people who complain that, oh, you know, we don't have the positivity around us. Well, you know, humans unique among all organisms have the ability to modify their environment. Like, yes, it takes yeah. a little bit of work, but the payoff is huge. What's interesting about that is um, I relate it to you in the following way, right? So the little things that I like to do that sort of remind me of how this, this approach can be better for everybody else around me. So whenever I talk to people and I was sitting, I'm like, you know, think of somebody you think is attractive. Right? What is it about their attractive qualities that draw your attention to them? And it's almost always this layer of symmetry that's built into it, right? Oh, their face is beautiful, it's symmetrical, or this, that, and the other. I'm like, okay, cool. Think about the same thing that applies to a piece of jewelry or a car or, you know, a flower or a dish. You know, when you see chefs, when they're presenting food, it's presentation becomes part of the, the equation. So what I did was I said, okay, I want to embody this aspect of appreciating this for myself. So I bought this ring. It's a very special ring. It's a tungsten ring that's black on the outside and it's blue on the inside. And inside of it is the inscription by... Um, the, the great poet John Keith's famous couplet, which says that, you know, truth is beauty, beauty is truth, right? So I put that ring on every morning, okay. and as, I, as I'm putting it on, I remind myself that, look, if you pursue truth, it will be beautiful. And if you pursue beautiful things, they can only come about if it's truthful to self. So the first thing right. I do, I'm like, hey, I'm making my bed. What if somebody walked in here? What would, what would I want them to see? And so that's a simple thing, right? Okay, well, what's a beautiful way to lay out this bed versus a sloppy way to lay out this bed? And there's where you start. Right? You just start simple. And you say, okay, cool. What about how I dress? How I, you know, and obviously people are like, oh, I don't have money to buy our money. I'm like, this is not about our money. This is about can you put together something that looks reasonable and you could pursue that out the door? How about when I introduce myself to my, my neighbor while we're waiting for the elevator? What is the most beautiful thing I could say? Good morning. How are you today? Did you get a good night's rest? 
most people are so miserable, they're stuck with faces in their phones, they don't want to talk to their neighbors, all these other things that happen. Yeah, they distrust you if you even try to talk to them, you know? Right, right. And and so it sort of escalates beyond the stage, right? So I always start my morning with that ring, right? So I, I get out of the shower and I put on that ring and it was just, it's kind of like, it's this weird thing. I grew up, I guess, when I was a kid, I grew up watching this cartoon, I think it was called Captain Planet or something, where they wore a bunch of rings and like the ring was a superpower, I don't know. It got stuck yeah, in my psyche somehow. Yeah. <laughs> it got stuck in my psyche, right? So this was always my power. It's like, okay, I wear this ring and it reminds me. And here's how it translates, which is weird. The food I make, the way I, I, I clean up my plate afterwards. When I write code, I comment my code. I use a specific font that looks beautiful to look at. There's colors that are built into my editor. None of that is necessary, but it is necessary in the sense that if you care enough about the way this thing looks when you're writing it, you're going to care enough about how it functions when you're pushing it out to people to use it. And then that translates to my users. I'm like, okay, I write software for a living. Okay, my user comes onto this system. Let me assume that my user hates computers. Let me assume that my user doesn't like to be challenged. They just want to sort of figure it out on the spot. So how can I do that? What if I think for 30 minutes to save them one minute of trouble? I multiply that by... 17, 1800 people who are using the software internally at the company, how much time am I saving them? So the truth and beauty equation right there has always been asymmetrical. Right? So it, it ties up. It's like, oh, okay, use this. Well, what, what about if we use colors on the user interface to denote information? If something is bad, yeah. give it a color red. If something is good, give it a color green. If something is really good, give it a color purple. It's almost majestic, right? It's a little story. Yeah, yeah, this, this is, in a lot of ways, it's a fat-tailed effect. Like, if you do it well, the upside is is multiplicative, and if you do it poorly, by you know by contrast, like it has this cascading downside. You know, obviously, yeah. the, the presumption is you're doing everything you can not to do it poorly. It was more just, you know, when when you add these features, because it is gleaned and used uh, dynamically and interactively among the people you're doing it to serve, um, like you you create this this effect that kind of runs away with itself. Like after a point, it becomes it it improves on its own because people recognize how much it adds and they can they can leverage it in a lot of ways, maybe ways that you didn't necessarily anticipate that they were going to use. Well, see, the, the perfect thing about that is when you're in a corporate environment, corporate software is written by people who have zero taste for aesthetics, right? So they have no <laughs> sense. It's, it's, and I say that with the absolute truth of it all because the, the internal tools we use, and Amber could attest to this because she works in the same place I do, are so god-awful that it hurts your eyes to look at them. So I'm like, <laughs> right off the bat, my competition has set the bar. <laughs> my competition has set the bar so low that with bare minimal effort, I can exceed and supersede what anybody else can possibly fathom these things to be like. But what's <laughs> awesome about it is, yeah, and, and my partner who we, you know, we write code with together at work, I always tell him, I'm like, he goes, you know, how do we know we got this right? I'm like, it's very simple. We're going to show our user interface to our uh, users. And as soon as they see it, they're going to say one thing to us. They're going to say, of course, that's how it should be done. I said, that's when you know you've got it right, because they don't have anything to add, and they're not asking you to remove anything. They're giving you what they think they would have done had they designed it. Meanwhile, these are the same people that if you go back three months when we're asking them, okay, what, should the, what, do, what do you want this to look like? I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, right? They don't know what to look for. But when you show them the right answer to the problem, they assume your answer is what their answer would have been had they been in charge of putting it together. Exactly. It's it's like how uh, Joe described on on that the podcast you released that um, preferences are are hidden 
because uh, behaviors to try and arrive at or, or seek what people report as preferences are inherently faulty and context-specific. Uh, and, right. it, and it dovetails to a bigger point that Nassim had made, like polls are useless because yep. people do not reveal preferences through answering a questionnaire. They re reveal through behavior. And, yep. uh, you know, obviously it's not entirely behavior when you demo a product, but just like you're <laughs> describing, they don't know what they want but they do recognize what they would have wanted when they're presented with it. Yes, and that's, that's the, the key thing that uh, we're always harping on is that if you pursue beauty, uh, and people think all oh, beauty is a, a superficial concept. I'm like, no, no, no. Beauty, if you speak to a really profoundly uh, introverted uh, mathemat mathematician types, they'll tell you that they always describe a mathematical solution as elegant and beautiful. Elegant, yes, it's yes. Like, hmm. There it is, right? Of, of the, all the people in the world that you would expect to use that word, here's a mathematician telling you that the symmetry- People who hate reading great. poetry as fun <laughs> philosophy, like, you know? Yep, yep. And, and, and they, they'll, they'll describe it in that way too. And so for me, the word actually um, connotates an energy level, right? It's like, this is the level of effort I'm willing to put into something because I want the end result to be beautiful, right? So that is the core aesthetic of of pursuing truth is that truth in itself is beautiful. And if you apply truth to your system, if you remove inflammation, if you pay attention to what's going on around you, you, if you create value for others and you not only clip fat left, uh, uh, fat tails on the left side for yourself, but you try to actively clip those for others around you, you get opportunities that blossom in front of you. Right? And it's kind of weird because uh, right now on this podcast with us is a person who's literally experienced this in a short span of time, like uh, so to, to give you some ideas, uh, there are jobs that um, I've managed to secure as a side business that have been, that's too much for me to handle. And then I have to say, hey, Ember, guess what? <laughs> you just got a new job. And she's like, well, I didn't even apply for anything. I'm like, that's too bad because I need you to do the following four or five things for me. And so, Ember, you have all been voluntold, okay? I <laughs> they, am voluntold. <laughs> Right. And so she, she gets to jump on this train and, and, and she came along, um, you know, wanting to study Nassim's work. And, and I told her, I said, you know, you're going to read some Marshall McLuhan because the way that guy thinks that there are people in this world who are one in a, one in seven billion. Right? There are people who walk this earth who are so exceptional at what they do and that their frame of reference is so beautiful that even if you can't arrive at those conclusions on your own, you're still clever and smart enough to appreciate their conclusions once you've read them. Similar to how people, when they see the software solution that's aesthetically perfect, and what I mean by that is that it solves their problem. So if you look at like the way Apple designs their software, you may not, may or may not be an Apple fan, but what you do know is is that even a baby, and I and I have many nieces and nephews, maybe um, Wavy's, she just turned one. You put her in front of an iPad, and she knows exactly what to do. Right? And that's because those guys at Apple spent time figuring out. But this is the way it should be done so that a baby doesn't need instructions for it. Just like a baby doesn't need instructions yeah. to put food in her mouth. Right? And, and uh, it's um, further than that, which personally is kind of what both amazes me and, and where I came from aesthetically. Um, not only is it so intuitive that you just know it as though um, it, it's how it should all have always been, but sometimes it rewrites how a person thinks about the way it should have been times previous or how they thought of other previous experiences. Someone who uses an iPad 
after having only used, say, an Android um, tablet, you know, mm-hmm. while they are very similar, they'll they'll use the iPad and think to themselves, man, now I understand why I didn't like certain things on the previous experience or why, you know, I like certain things that this one does before. And mm-hmm. um, the idea of influence being retroactive in addition to interactive uh, mm-hmm. comes from... My my having read uh, of all things Shakespeare and some yep. of the the critical commentary on it by uh, a, a great critic, a man named Harold Bloom, a man who yep. much like Nassim, uh is skeptical towards modernity and reacts against bullshit in his domain. And in, in case of Bloom, it's in it's in literature and aesthetics, of which there is very much in universities long before what's happening with social justice on campuses in the past five or ten years. Um, and, and something he related about, uh, Shakespeare specifically, but just about any great writer whose consciousness is sufficiently strong that it creates a rereading effect. If you, if you take in their work, it molds how you think in such a way that it modifies how you would, uh, reinterpret things that you had even encountered before, like reading Othello and seeing Iago go silent after having made his machinations and been so cleverly amoral suddenly makes you reconsider how the parson, when he did, relates the parson's tale in Chaucer uh, in the Canterbury Tales, does the same thing where he deliberately goes silent after having been amoral. And, and you know, then it provokes the, the reader to speculate what the relationship between the parson and Iago is and, and uh, the nature of influence. Which is not, which is, you know, not to get too far away from what you're describing about the process of software development and how in human behavior, if you show someone what it is they wanted, even if they didn't, they couldn't tell you that's what it was. Um, right. There, there's that, there's that property that people have. Uh, and to even dovetail it even further back, uh, while I totally agree with you about Scott Adams being in some ways an IYI like Nate Silver. Unlike Nate Silver, at least Scott Adams admits he is applying a a pseudo hypnotist filter. He's not pretending to be scientific, and right. you know, obviously, as you saw with his um, interaction with Joe Norman, when confronted with real science that may not be uh, shoved under the rug. Yeah, yeah, that 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 are hard to confront using the filter he uses. Like like it creates cognitive dissonance, and he can't answer it. Um, right reason I still happen to kind of follow him occasionally is that that view of the world where humans are permeable and where they are able to be influenced much like reading Shakespeare can do to a person or or like how uh, as Bloom would would maintain that the Shakespearean influence on personality has affected like all of literature that's come since um, being aware of this property that is active both in media, but just in in personalities and what it means to be memorable is valuable in and of itself. Uh, And and while it can be hard to spot, you can be trained to see it. And, uh, you know, as you're relating with uh, your experiences with Ember and just working in the corporate world, uh, you can see a domain in which it's, it's totally true with how people respond and then they suddenly 
uh, become more receptive to new ideas that you present them as soon as you show them something that they really like and that they're good. And now suddenly it's like if they didn't like any of your project ideas before, but then they like this one, suddenly they're like, oh, well, what else do you have? And you could even show them the same ideas, but then they're going to be like, oh, well, we like it now without realizing yeah. what's going on in their head. No, you know what's uh, amazing about that is that uh, you're one of the first people I've found who also has an appreciation for literature. And uh, I have been, you know, when I, when I can't read uh, something technical because it's work-related or if I'm not reading something from the guys, uh, you know, uh, I, I revert back to Shakespeare. You know, I have a collection oh, of poems from all the best, right? So, but when you, start, when, you, when you went down that road, I was just hop-skipping along because I'm like, yes, finally somebody else who gets this idea because Shakespeare's influence not only influences my thought patterns in terms of how I create things, but it also influences music because music is influenced by the rhythmic uh, ideas of this poetry. And then I listen to a lot of hip hop. And then when I find a hip hop artist, I'm like, look, this is a person who's essentially carrying the torch from the Shakespearean times. It's just, this is a modern interpretation of it. They're yeah. telling a story, but they're telling it to you in their way, but it's also reflective and, re and reactive to what came before it. And if you read uh, James Joyce, uh, you know, when you read Finnegan's Wake, or if you read, um, uh, you know, the portrait of an artist of a young man, um, when you read these, these, these works uh, and you read um, Marshall McLuhan, who is a Joyce scholar, and he yep. tells you things like, look, um, if an alien civilization showed up tomorrow, and as soon as they showed up here, we know two things right off the bat. One, and this is not McLuhan speaking, this is me paraphrasing a set of ideas from McLuhan, is that holding up an iPhone and doing a Google search to this advanced alien civilization is not going to get you anything, because clearly they have technology beyond ours because they got here, right? So that's the right. first thing. Exactly. What can you hold We're not up? going to impress them with our scientific yeah. achievements. No, but what you can do is, um, to paraphrase uh, McLuhan's own ideas, is to hold up Finnegan's Wake and say, within this tome is the recreation of civilization itself. Right? This is the... Uh, uh, complete history of, of all the things that we've achieved from art and literature into our 10,000 history, 10,000 year history across the civilizations of the world, because Joyce basically managed to paraphrase and summarize every works of literature that came before him as right. a throwaway sentence in his conversations. Right. So built into like the wake is yeah. generators for all kinds of ideas or extensions of an idea that uh, a person could make whole works upon later on, which, you know, obviously Finnegan's Wake, it, it owes debts of influence in, in other places. But as a condensation of all of that put together, you know, you, you can take a page or several pages from it and from that, like I mentioned, you know, you know, generate things that that uh, produce ideas that riff off of what was written if, you know, in part because of the ling linguistic nimbleness, in part because of the, the strength of certain ideas and certain poetry presented. I mean, you know, Finnegan's Wake, even though it's, it's presented in prose, like it has to be read like a poem because every word is so precisely chosen and the relationships between how, uh, how it narrates uh, requires close scrutiny just first to understand, but also to recognize its place within the, this bigger whole of what it's trying to do. Yeah, no, and, and, and in that regard, I, I you know, it's, it's funny because everybody I've met, I've met, and this is just a consequence of um, uh, just misfortune in the sense that uh, public education has failed miserably, is that people don't like math and they don't like poetry. And I'm like, how can you... <laughs> 
right? It's like two of the most fundamental things that bring joy you don't like, and I know why it is. And I'm like, okay, let me rephrase all this out for you. So when you read poetry, it's the most distilled form of art that you can imagine. Why? Well, because the poet, unlike the writer of a novel, has a limited set of words that they can choose to convey their message, but they have to arrest your attention long enough for you to want to read it. Right? So that is a daunting task if there ever was one. And if the poem is good enough that it survives past their lifetime, then you know it's worth reading and rereading all over again because within it, you are reading a, uh, a piece of poetry from a poet in a particular period of time whose influence was the previous authors, whose epoch was the political milieu of the time, and the influence of the wars that preceded and uh, uh, influenced this person's life is encapsulating all of that history into just this one little section of thought uh, as a stream of consciousness from this person. So if you can't appreciate that, then I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of beauty is going to be left unresolved for you because you're not going to be able to harvest that field and to retain the joy that comes from being able to do something like that. And it works in the, fo in the following way. As you were mentioning earlier, when they see the software that we create, uh, and, and I take pride in my work. I, I'm, I take everything else completely you know, nonchalantly. I, I joke around all the time, but my work I take very seriously. And here's what's interesting about right, it. Right, it's a reflection of who you are, like when you do it well, especially. Exactly, because you pour your heart and soul into it, you think about a problem and you, you get it done right. But here's what happens, uh, and, I've, and I've known when I got it right. It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen sufficiently enough that I can validate it with some statistical analysis and say, hey, Sample size is decent, but I can say this is what I'm doing. It's done right. When it's done right, they go back to all the other corporate software that they were using, and they go, "Man, this stuff is awful." I'm like, "Yeah, now you're getting it." Because now the bar is set by the work we do. Because they go, "Oh, all future tools need to look like this because this is amazing." Because you've taken this nasty problem with like three menus hidden inside two menus for me to figure out something, and they give it to me in this information in a way that I can't really digest. You're just showing it to me. At a glance, I could figure out exactly what my problem is. That's amazing. But that's just the second order effect of having good software that's informed by poetry, art, literature, and so right. Because you can't do that level of work. Because pure engineering is pure engineering, but it's not beautiful. Right. Pure it's, engineering it's the, informed the equivalent of food would be like, um, you know, eating tuna cans and, uh, you know, chocolate. Like... Yeah. Purely functional. <laughs> Purely fun and it doesn't work in that regard, but if it's informed by a little bit of poetry, this, this starts to work itself around it. But I had this conversation with one of my bosses, um, and I said, to her, I said to her, I said, listen, here's what's interesting about what you've discovered. Because as she was just interacting with my software, and it was a problem particularly for her uh, to, to solve, because what she ends up getting is she gets these 15 to 16 spreadsheets every week, and there's these weird graphs, and she has to go through oh. all this. Oh. That's just mind-numbing, right? So she hates it. So I said, look, send me those spreadsheets, and then I'll create these beautiful charts that are on this website called AM Charts. It's a free JavaScript library that you can actually sort of digest that system. And they give you these gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous ways to display this information. And I showed it to her, and she just stared at it. She goes, wow. Now if my boss asks me what's happening, I can actually look at him in the face and give him a straight answer because now I don't have to go, I don't know, let me go find this freaking spreadsheet 7 or 15. But what was interesting was 
she drew the next conclusion. And I wanted to kind of set her up in that direction, but I didn't want to quite necessarily take her there myself. So I said, okay, I want you to think about something. You just launched a program, not with me, but another group, where you've brought people in who have created a game to train your staff to use the crappy tools that you already have bought in this company. Right, so think about what just happened here. You invested money, you bought some software tools. The tools are so bad that your agents can't figure out how to use them. And instead of figuring out maybe the tools are the problem, you jump to the conclusion that my agents are the problem. And so the consequence, you went out and you bought another tool to help your students or your agents be actively engaged enough to remember how to use these tools by gamifying their use case. <laughs> yeah. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. Like, if, like a complete perversion of skin in the game because of the corporate yeah. structure. Exactly. But if that first tool was properly designed, and if it was designed with the aesthetic in mind of respecting the user's time and respecting the user's patience and respecting their valuable input so that they wouldn't have to think about all this, so they wouldn't forget how to use it, you wouldn't have had to go and hire this next company. So in a way, right. I told her, I said, look, um, and she goes, well, you know, I see where your point is. Um, so I guess a pretty good uh, take on your part because, you know, obviously you're making uh, pretty good uh, connections for me. So well, here's the thing I want you to understand. This is not about arrogance or vanity or anything like that. What this really tells you is that I'm basically a garbage man because what I'm doing here is I'm cleaning up the mess. <laughs> That came before me because if you, if, if the, the solution to these problems were conceived by people who at least had my inclination for how to look at these problems, and it's not like it's the perfect solution, but at the very least, I could tell you that it would have helped you avoid all these other sorts of issues that you're currently facing. Right. Right. So, well, I mean, like, if, if, if you aren't solving it, like you're at least identifying the problem so they're aware of it, which is more than anyone has done to for them to this point. Exactly. Exactly. So, so this this whole aesthetic. I, I've, I've, you know, I love meeting engineers, but if I meet an engineer who appreciates poetry, oh, it's like a whole other, other level. I'm like, okay, now we could really, you know, because uh, it changes the entire atmosphere of the conversation. Because a lot of the people who we talk to, they're not necessarily appreciative of literature per se, or they are, but they haven't read it, or they have read it, but they don't understand it. But they kind of understand it, but they don't understand the meaning behind it. It's like, okay, what are you judging the sentence by? So when I say you know, truth is beauty, beauty is truth. And what's beautiful about that sentence is you can also flip it. You can say beauty is truth and truth is beauty. It works both ways, right? Right, so, right. Like, like uh, what if uh, the truth is harsh and disturbing? How could that be beautiful? And then explaining, right. like, well, there's in, this intrinsic property, you know. Exactly, exactly. And what was interesting about that was that that first ring, where the, key, the, po the poem was written exactly as it was, that line was, was stated. I lost that ring temporarily because I don't know where no, I was misplaced, but I had a friend uh, replace that ring for me. And what was interesting about it was she uh, got the quote for me, but I had said it backwards. And she got me the ring, replaced it, but it said the, the phrase backward, but it still worked. So right, exactly, have, exactly. <laughs> I have two rings that have the same sentence flipped in both directions, but it still works. And that's what I love about it. It's sort of like a... It's almost like a palindrome when it comes to the meaning of it, right? So you can read it yeah, in one, one of my, way. One of my favorite verses of scripture uh, does the same thing. Um, when it's when Christ describes how if you uh, if you have a sheep and you go out to 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 like like if one sheep is astray, 
you leave the rest, you leave your flock to go get it. And, and then he describes that um, your treasures are relative to where you want to go, go search for them. And he says, you know, store up your treasures in heaven and so forth. And in Matthew 6, 21, he says, um, for where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. And yep. it's the same idea. Like you, you, could, you could flip that and it's still true. And, you know, obviously that, that one line is a condensation of several ideas. But even if you didn't have the context for it, like it's still profound. Oh, of course. Of course. That's why I think the, the whole concept of, of Lindy, because uh, I've been always trying to think about it in that regard, right? Because how is religious ideas and how are religious texts Lindy? And I found out what, what, what makes them Lindy. And it's kind of what this thing that Joel was talking about last time. And it's sort of this thing that Nassim harks on, is that what you don't want to do is you don't want to over-prescribe a solution to a problem. Because right? yes. that becomes very specific and it gets blocked in time. Right now, it only makes sense or when you set it to maybe a couple of years. But if you have a general solution that's sort of vague, but if you leave room for interpretation, the dynamics of human culture and the time that passes through it allows that system to actually maintain its timelessness quality, right? Sometimes you listen to some music and it's timeless, and it's like, well, how come that's timeless? And this other piece of music, is, which is just basically trash, but it's hot for the summer, right? So yeah, yeah, it, it yeah. has that same quality. It has that same fundamental feel to it, which is like, hey, you know what? Somebody, and, and I think I, I, I've kind of managed to slightly uncover the secret behind that. And, I, and this is a first stop attempt at it. But I think what it is, is if you think long and hard about a problem, you may come to a solution to that problem that's general enough that it will surpass your lifetime. And that's what I think that these profound sacred texts and these works of literature and this work of poetry and this timelessness does because the people who usually come up with this stuff, they suffered for their art. And that's what I mean by that is that they've put time into it. They've thought about it long and hard and they've uh, sleep over it. And they've, you know, like Picasso uh, and his paintings and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Chopin and his music and, you know, Beethoven and his, uh, his music and, you know, my, my current, one of my current favorite rappers, Jid, and his music. And you, you kind of listen to it, and there's this weird thread across all of them, which is like, you know what? At a certain level, when you're creating art, it doesn't matter how that art manifests itself in reality. What matters is the intention and the effort to bring that into reality that allows it to sustain itself past the duration of the typical lifetime exactly. of a product that's sort of, quote-unquote, commercial in nature. Yeah. Uh, when... Um, when you had asked me about kind of what my biography was and what my background was. Something that I brought up and had mentioned earlier in this podcast was that my, my first interest was actually in movies. Um, mm. and, it's, and it's in movies that I kind of discovered how there are, are properties of fat-tailed effects. Like, uh, for example, uh, studios are constantly buying quote-unquote cheap options because the market always serves screenwriters who are amateurs with soul in the game and or who are willing to sell cheap options and you know write screenplays purely on speculation but if they make it then right. the success continues to compound on itself uh because yep. even if they're as good as any other screenwriter who could have made it if they mm -hmm. get the right opportunity then that they can parlay that further you know if given a level of aesthetic quality and i tried to yep. reconcile that marketplace effect with 
movies that seem to endure. Like, what? why is North by Northwest so good? Why is The Rules of the Game by Jean Renoir so good? Why do we, mm. why do we love Alfred Hitchcock? Um, that, mm. that sort of thing. Mm. And, and to dovetail it to what you're describing about the Lindy effect and how that relates to the aesthetic uh, barriers or thresholds that an artist produces or imposes on themselves, uh, mm. even even to, to, to dovetail it to Shakespeare, like the stronger the thought that that someone uh, imposes on what it is they want to make, the longer you mm. can expect it to last. Contingent on the strength of that thought being what what they expect, um, and and even if that goes unnoticed, Van uh, yep. Gogh was not appreciated in his day, but then years later. Because you know his work had been able to survive, it, it then was. I don't know any of Van Gogh's contemporaries, but the reason I don't know them is that they're in the silent graveyard of people who were good for a season, who took the money that you know uh, modern IYI intellectual types say that Van Gogh should have gotten at the time, but you know th their work didn't survive. Um, right. And and obviously movies as a medium are are way 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 um, younger than. Uh, the other visual arts like painting or sculpture or, or, or similarly. But I tried to reconcile that same thing that like movies, especially as a cultural phenomenon, are incredibly hot. Uh, mm. Like like Avatar was mm. was what I mean, might even still be the biggest grossing movie of all time. And, you know, mm. you can do fat tailed regressions on like the gross of movies relative to their effects on the bottom line of a studio. But uh, Avatar, while it was like an incredible runaway success, in my opinion, will not be preserved in the canon a hundred years from now, despite its technical achievement. Um, mm -hmm. And and to me, the the latent lesson I learned was just as I, I opened with: if someone puts enough craftsmanship into their work, and it relates to what I mentioned uh, when we were talking about cooking. And, and that you had said uh, that you learned and disciplined yourself for software development. If, you, if a person loves the process of yes. constructing a movie, of editing it, of creating uh, a form in which it, it is paced correctly and that the ideas are salient, but then also presented that, that function within the rest of it. Like if, if someone loves that process well enough, they will create a product that people uh, may or may not appreciate at the time, but it will survive. The people will be rewatching it 20, 50, 100 years from now, even after other ones that might have made more money uh, are being forgotten. You know, it's funny about that, you, as you mentioned that, um, uh, what came to mind is the, the, the Wachowskis, right? And they were saying yeah. that um, <laughs> if, you watch, if you watch interviews of them when they were younger, they're talking about how they used to write 10,000 pages and pages of, of various ideas and stuff they put together. And their argument was that and it, it kind of talks to convexity, right? Even, even Shakespeare. A lot of people know his famous works, but they don't know that there's a whole pile of stuff that's kind of not that good. But it, it's good if you're like... Yeah, a, nobody's had Richard III, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is what I mean by that, is that sometimes what they, the cost of, of becoming, a, as you said, a craftsman uh, of, your, of, your, of the labor of your love is that you're willing to eat the cost of the poor, uh, poorly produced results because you know it's, it's an investment in the better versions that you're going to create. It's sort of like how um, uh, Walt Disney was saying that 
We don't make movies to make money. We make money to make movies, right? So it's, it's sort of this weird flipping of the script to say, okay, the, the vision of this drives the purpose of this. The purpose of this is to create feedback loop into the vision. So in itself, it becomes exactly. self-sustaining, right? So you've created, in a way, a perpetual uh, machine, which is supposed to be not possible, but it actually can be if you have the right set of ideas that people follow. And it tends to be weird because I can draw lines so that I'm following four, four vectors. Right? So the first vector is this idea of Christianity, right? So um, I'm not a Christian, but I know enough Christians and I've, you know, I live in Canada, so I kind of have a, a pretty good sense of what's going on with it. Is right. that if the ideas are self-sustaining enough, it just expands and maintains its own momentum. Right? So you can never squash Christianity out of existence. Right? It's just not going to happen. Same thing with the idea of democracy. Right? Same thing with the idea of what we consider the Western approach to um, to life and whatnot. And the Eastern Orthodox point of view with with, uh, with uh, uh, Buddhism, some of the ideas that they propose are also intrinsically well-placed such that they actually allow people to do amazing things with it, all of their own construct. So it kind of gives them, it, the way I see it is it gives you a rail on which to put your train on. And that train exactly. can go at its own speed and it can go to that destination and the destination is unknown. And that's what makes it beautiful because if you watch The Matrix, you can watch that movie a thousand times and it's still good. You, I've watched right? um, a 2001 Space Odyssey. I've watched that Oh my God, I don't know how many times I've watched that, but Avatar, I watched it once and I never wanted to watch it again. I don't know what it was. I'm like, eh, I, I, yeah, okay, no. But I, I, I don't know what it is, but then you kind of gave me an idea about it as we were talking. It's this idea of the movie studios are trying to be in this position to be convex. They're just placing multiple bets and hoping one of them wins. So that's right. the starting point. But some of them do this right and some of them do this wrong. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. What you want is you want an artist was frugal. It's an artist who cares deeply about the particular word placed in the particular sentence that the character utters, and not because they want that to become a catchphrase like, I'll be back, but it's just some, something that they know that that character will be known for. Right? So, like, for example, uh, Christopher Nolan's um, Joker, why so serious? That's not even a sentence that really makes sense, but in the character's context, it makes complete and total sense because that's the agent of chaos and you're enwrapped into his world, and all of a sudden, in that context, it makes sense, but it bleeds out elsewhere. So his work is also of that sort. But what I find interesting is frugal is good, because a frugal person is a person who says, I have your attention for a specific period of time, and during that period of time that I have your attention, I want to give you back more than you've actually invested in this. Whereas a cheap person has the following intention. I have your attention, and that's all I care about, and I know you're not going to come back as a repeat customer. I know you're not going to like this. But because I'm so cheap, I'll get so many people to pay attention to me that I'll make the money back for what I've done to do this process. And that's where they lose it. right? So that's where the artist that is cheap for the aspect of selling out, as Nassim would say, they're sold for just a little bit of money. They make their money, but they lose their, their, their membership as, a, as an artist. Whereas the ones who are frugal... They sacrifice their integrity... Theoretically, exactly. for, for some exactly. payoff that's bounded, and they can yeah. never get it back. And they can never get it back. And no matter what they do to try to get it back, it doesn't work. So it's, it's, it's nicely tied into the overall arching aspect of everything we've been talking about, right? So it's this idea of things that have value, things that are timeless, things that are uh, beautiful, things that require effort, 
you know, things that are, and, and what's interesting about that particular line of reasoning is if you pursue it, you inherently become almost violently allergic to bullshit. Right? I, oh. I think one of the common threads is we're all like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and <laughs> um, even a common person is like that outside of the domains in which they've been, for lack of a better word, brainwashed, you know. Yep. Um, if if you were to if you were to get someone uh, in a domain for which they don't have any strong feelings, they they can detect nonsense very readily. It's just yep. uh, having been conditioned to think of I don't know CNN or having been conditioned to love the Avengers series or any number of other things. Um, that irrational part of our minds that can be subverted takes over. And, you know, I can tell any number of people, uh, guys, don't don't read too deeply into whatever the purple guy in Avengers does for like deep human meaning. And mm -hmm. and I will get so much pushback from some of my friends who really love comic books and, and so forth. Um, but uh, if I were to talk with them on the level about, you know, what 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 do you think Amazon really does to our spending habits? Then suddenly they're like, well, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, about some of the purchases that I've made myself, or that you know, they'll they'll talk about things that that, like I mentioned, they still preserve their intuition, mm. in their uh, boredom and their skepticism, but simply because they haven't been um, overexposed. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Uh, so that's uh, uh, you know, like I said, this has been a utterly fascinating and enjoyable conversation. Did you, have, did you uh, have any other areas you wanted to sort of tap in on and discuss that you feel like we haven't covered? No, no. I mean, I most. Uh, I mean, I don't have the same um, uh, institutional or, or, frankly, even intellectual pedigree as some of the other guests you've had on, like Joe or like David or like Rushank. If you're planning on having him, if you have him already. Um, so, one of the things that I thought to myself prior to to talking with you is like, well. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, to mention anything that's really, really juicy that hasn't already been gotten over with uh, with you and some of your other guests. Um, that being said, such as such as I think I have my own novelty or differentiation between other people relative to like my own walk of life and for mm -hmm. the broader scope of, of risk taking um, the. I think we've covered most of everything. The only thing I would want to probably elaborate on more was, um, as what Nassim would say, a celebration of what works, but uh, right. in my estimation is closer to uh, the phrase explanations are bullshit, is more just that idea that like um, we only find out the truth from testing it ourselves. Uh, right. whether it's like, you know, aesthetically and you make your own estimations on, you know, if, if, uh, uh, Richard Prince is actually that good, or if Andy Warhol is actually that good, or, um, you know, if some, if some guy you saw on Twitter says that he's made a lot of money trading doing X, then you do X yourself and it doesn't make money. Then like, you know, that he was just trying to sell you something, but mm -hmm. it, it, it comes to, in my opinion, that deeper epistemic humility that Joe Norman talked about that I'm sure has been brought up multiple times afterwards, that mm. there is opacity in life mm. that 
uh, we're confronted with that people around us still trudge through without any skepticism that, you know, we, we still have to trudge through ourselves, but at least we can be informed with how we do it relative to what we think we know. Uh, right. and, and the reason I, I say it specifically with the phrase explanations are bullshit is that mm. we, we explanations should be suspect even when they're correct. Right. Like, I'm not saying right. that we cannot get conclusive answers. What I am saying, though, is that even if we know how things work, um, there's a fundamental, it's like the green lumber fallacy. There's a fundamental difference between knowing how things work and knowing what a thing does to us. Uh, right. I can tell someone all about, uh, like, real measurable things about how the melatonin process takes place uh, as soon as dusk starts and the sun has gone down and there is no more blue or UV light in the sky and that eventually it pools in the brain at the time when the leptin hormone is being secreted by your fat cells and that your brain does a certain accounting on energy requirements and fat burning at night for heat generation and all the other stuff that there is a known medical understanding regarding it right but mm -hmm. i have never seen a melatonin molecule in my life i physically cannot because it's tiny uh right i i couldn't even tell you what the chemical formula of melatonin is i try to avoid using the word when talking to mm -hmm. people about why my orange glasses work it's just mm -hmm. that in my experience if i were to just tell them oh yeah like these orange glasses help me sleep and they've helped everyone i know who've used them very diligently sleep well they just don't believe that. They need to be right. told a narrative to feel more comfortable about what it is that I'm telling them about, even if it's bullshit. Because as, yeah. as Scott Adams would say, when people generally are confronted between certainty or uncertainty, they'll always pick certainty, even if being yep. certain is wrong. Yep. No, it's true. There's, there's, there's a, uh, ample evidence to... to um, validate that claim in the following regard, right? So go back to hunter-gatherer times, and we are all descendants of the people who formed tribes instead exactly. of the people who went out to discover the truth, right? So the consequence, our natural inclination is to agree with everybody around us for the sake of social cohesion so that you can survive. So that's it's deeply rooted in that particular way. And what's interesting is, and I, and I tell this to all my, um, my guests that come on, and like, oh, well, you know, if you're going to have, you know, one day Nassim might come on your talk uh, to talk with you guys, and I don't know what to say. I'm like, look, here's what's interesting about it. Uh, we're all decentralized nodes on this network, right? So there's stuff that I know that Nassim doesn't know. That's just, that's just how the world is going to be constructed. So your value is to be measured by me and by Ember because of the way we do it. And we, we respect um, Milton's original quote, which is what we start all the shows with, is that by the known rules of ancient liberty, you are an expression of life. And your experiences may be different, but that does not mean they're worse. And if they are bad, because we will get somebody on here who is probably not going to be as interesting to speak with as you are, um, that's well, okay. Because somebody, <laughs> somebody will learn from it, right? And 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 I, there are very few people uh, walking this planet that I would say that I deeply admire. Uh, Joe happens to be one of them, because Joe's the only guy uh, besides Nassim and uh, um, some of the other guys that, when he says something. It almost always counterintuitively uh, shatters my perception of what that problem is, but it actually right. validates my intuition of what that thing might be. And that's so hard right. to articulate. 
One way, like as soon as he says it, like you totally get it, even yeah, if you yeah. might not necessarily have arrived at that conclusion by yourself. Right, and and as a caveat, because Joe is also human, there are times when he gets it wrong, which is cool, which is how we know that we're all in the same boat, and we're all just trying to help each other uh, stay afloat so we don't. Fortunately, uh, Joe will admit it when it's presented to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so. So there's always these layers built into it, and and um, we we respect and appreciate everybody's perspective. Because like I said, um, uh, you know, there's this weird hierarchical thing about um, podcasts. Oh, you're gonna go on Joe Rogan. I personally, there's a reason why we don't do this over video, right? Because this is about the conversation. The conversations right. to me are Lindy in the sense that that's what we've always done. I guarantee you, there's a version of us sitting in a cave somewhere right now having this conversation in the alternate universe, right? But just we're talking yeah. about hey. Don't go over that rock. There's a snake hiding behind it, right? Something of that sort is is what makes it interesting. Because because here we are talking. It's been almost three hours, and we've had we've touched so many different topics. You know, our mutual. I didn't know. I thought I was one of the only guys who liked poetry and literature and the Ruri crew. Thank God, there's more. I'm sure David liked it too. Cause he sort of gives me hints and intimations about it, and uh, yeah. so it feels yeah. kind of nice to see that that other aspect of it is still there. Because most of the guys are, you know, either engineers they're or they're reminded. traders. You know, that, it's a yeah. self-selecting filter that, that's led people to that way generally. Exactly. And, and, and that, that's our strength in one way, because, because we're not exactly what they are, we can step outside of that realm and we can actually facilitate this kind of conversation, right? Because if you brought on everybody who talked about finance and cat tales, three conversations later, nobody's interested, right? Well, and you've heard the, everything to be told. Like. Right. Right, but if you somehow meld the ideas of Shakespeare into user interfaces and software, well, now that leaves something for somebody else to imagine about, right? So hopefully somebody takes it there. And uh, I really wanted to thank you and extend my gratitude for you coming on this show. And Thank you very much for having me. It was an honor. No problem. Uh, Ember, did you want to have anything uh, left to say to Matthias? No, that was a, an awesome conversation. I enjoyed it a lot. It was one of the best that we had. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was. Credit right. to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, guys. All right. Take care, guys. It was awesome. I really appreciate Bye. it. Have okay. a good one, guys. You too. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any worthy conversation you'll ever have will inherently be a risky conversation. As long as it's open and honest where ideas are exchanged and emotions swirl. Thank you for listening, be anti-fragile, and carry on the ancient tradition in your own unique way. By saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Ember Sadat signing off. Wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations.